When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, uh, welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, uh, and you are tuned in to The Right Show on The Right Day. Happy Wednesday uh, to you and yours. It is hump day. It's the day after Tuesday, and it's the day before Thursday. It's two days before the weekend gets here. Uh, and man, do I have a special show uh, planned for us today. It's just you, me, and a little Tennessee harmony at the end. Uh, but I brought back a very special guest, uh, Ken Maurer. Uh, you guys remember Ken uh, from his NBA refereeing days and perhaps from his appearance on this show a couple of weeks ago uh, where he talked about uh, the vaccine mandate the NBA imposed on NBA referees and uh, you know, basically pushed Ken and a handful of other refs out of the league. Uh, the conversation with Ken went so well last time that, you know, I kind of wanted to bring Ken back, not so much to talk about COVID and the vaccine mandates, but just sports and the NBA. Uh, Ken's kind of clever. Uh, and, and Ken, having refed in the NBA for 36 years uh, over the course of, is that five different decades? You start in the 80s, 90s, 2000, 2010. Yeah, that's five different decades. I don't know how you do that in 36 years, but that's pretty impressive. Uh, but I want to bring him back just because he's got so much institutional knowledge of a league that uh, I think a lot of us uh, had a great deal of passion for and some of us still follow to some degree. I just want to talk some basketball with Ken this time. Uh, and so, uh, but, but Ken, welcome back. I do have to... Uh, start here and just ask, you know, has there been a lot of fallout? What was the reaction uh, to our first interview and people learning your plight and what, what happened to you this season? Well, first of all, thanks for having me back, Jason. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I didn't know what to expect, and uh, either did my wife, uh, doing something that, you know, your show is pretty well received all around the the country and and I, I I didn't know what people would think and I, I through my career I've I've uh, you know as as a referee you know there's always been a lot of criticism most of it negative and and I think, and well deserved but go ahead well deserved well, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that that would be good to talk about and so I'm I'm used to that most referees in in my position are so that's not something that I'm not used to but I, I was really anxious to see and to answer your question it was um it was better than I had even hoped um. Dreamed. I mean, um, my wife probably more than I went on to just see, you know, how would people would respond, and and for the most part, I mean, you're always going to have a few naysayers that that uh, for whatever reason they have their opinions, and that's that's okay. But it was it was wonderful. I mean, I've received 
I can't tell you how many phone calls and emails and texts and and just just and just from from your site. I mean, it's amazing the amount of people that that have reached out. People, you know, that both friends of mine, people that I don't even know, people from all all, all over the country, Canada. I mean, so it was um, it was good that they. Again, I never asked anybody to completely um, agree or understand. That's not what we're all about here. Either are you. And it's just to listen to what 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 I'm going through. And it's much like everybody, several other people in this country, and to, to try to understand it and give it its, its due. And uh, so it, it was it's uh, it was humbling. It was very positive, and um, I'm grateful. I'm sure Adam Silver and the NBA reached out and offered to fly you in for a long conversation. How did that go? You know, um, <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect it. Um, but, you know, when I, I went back and I listened to it, I listened to the whole thing with my wife and I because I wanted to make sure that I that I said everything that I, that I meant and that I didn't take something out of context or whatever. I didn't. And um, again, it would be nice. I have not heard from the NBA since uh, since last September. And they're going to say, because I have a lawyer. Well, I don't, I don't really think that that's much of an excuse. 36-year I mean, employee. Yeah, I mean, I've, they've, no, they've never. But it was funny. You know, a couple years ago when I had knee surgery, I remember after 34 years, never heard from the league. Uh, one year I had, uh, the reason I missed the bubble is because I had, I, had, um, I, I, I had hip surgery. Not hip surgery, but I had you know, stem cell incorporated in my hip, which was a complete success. Never, never one word from any part of management, anybody on the NBA staff, referee operations, nothing. So that's the thing that disappoints me the most uh, about, about the NBA is they, they sometimes claim to have this big family and it's, it's, um, it's not always that way. I'm going to ask one more question about COVID and then I want to switch up and ask some specific things to you and being a, a successful referee for so long. Uh, the mandates. <laughs> At the State of the Union, you know, the whole country just said, you know what, we don't have to wear masks anymore. We don't have to talk about COVID anymore. T- televisions dropped the topic. Uh, politicians have dropped the topic. States are, you know, moving away from all the mandates and, and imposing their will on people over. It's like COVID just went away, poof. And I think the NFL dropped all their protocols and, and there's a path for Kyrie Irving, I think, to play for the Brooklyn Nets this year at home games. And so with everybody uh, moving beyond COVID hysteria, uh, do you think that perhaps there's a path for you to return to the NBA? Well, I hope so. And that's one thing we never talked much about in the last interview that I, you know, I, I still want to go back to work. I mean, I, I loved my, I've been refereeing for, 50 years, over 40 years with the NBA, minor leagues and, 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 you know, of course, in the big show. But but I didn't never want it to really end my career like this. But so I've always wanted to come back. I don't know if the NBA is going to allow an NBA referee ever again to referee in the league without being vaccinated. So um, in answer to your question, you got to remember, NBA players were never mandated. NFL players were never mandated. NFL referees were never mandated. Uh, Major League Baseball umpires are never mandated, just NBA referees. So, um, and again, you can call them and you can ask them. I mean, I, I, one of, one of a, 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 ref, um, um, a member of the table from the Houston Rockets, he's a good friend of mine I've known for 25 years, he, he, put it the be- he put it the best way. 
He said, Kenny, um, I'm not working either. He called me up to say he saw our interview and he thought it was wonderful. He said, unbelievable. I'm so proud of you for speaking up for people that like me that don't have the platform. And he said, the NBA came to me after he's been there 30 years too. And he says, the NBA wanted all of us on the table and all the employees within the arena. They mandated that all of us take the vaccine to protect the commodity, the NBA player. But they didn't find it necessary to mandate the players not take the vaccine to protect me. So he said, I walked away. I did the same thing you did. I'm, I'm not, I, don't, I don't think that's fair. So he put it better than even I've been able to put it. Let's, wow. every, let's, let's everybody take the vaccine to protect the commodity. And I'm not saying that that's, hey, players of the league, they're important. I don't get me. But then we aren't going to mandate them to protect uh, the people on the table. So um, I don't know. I mean, it's did funny. Did you put a name to that comment or do you just said a friend? Or a, a good friend, a friend that worked at the, at, at the table. Gotcha. Yeah, a, a friend that worked at the table for the Houston Rockets. He'd been there 30 years, and he's not working this year either like me. So he called me up to tell me, Ken, I'm not working either. I chose not to take the vaccine, and here's what happened That's to me. That's a great point. And I, you know, let's protect the commodity, but the commodity doesn't have to protect us. So, um, so in answer to your question is, is that I don't know what's going to happen. I, I've talked with my attorney, and, and um, he says, Kenny, we're going to be, we're, my mandate's supposed to come up next month. So I definitely will keep you abreast as to what happens because the EOC says that you have to, your mandate has to be heard or ruled upon within six months. That's 180 days. I'm into my fourth month, almost the, the end of my fourth month. So I have less than 60 days left. So they're going to hear and or rule on my, on, my, on my case within 60 days. Now, we're appealing a religious exemption that was denied by my employer to a mandate that was illegal to begin with and now no longer exists. So I don't know what the heck's going to happen, and um, I'm looking very much forward to finding that out, and I'll certainly keep you abreast. And this isn't a question. This is a statement, because I I, want to move on. But your friend in Houston's made a marvelous point, and it's my problem with where the country is going. Hey, let's implement rules that protect the elite the people making the most money off of this game, the athletes, and I mean, they're making millions and millions of dollars, but let's mandate the vaccine to protect them, but they don't have to take the vaccine to protect you. That captures pretty much everything I think is wrong with American society, is we're, we're building, we're codifying because some people say the country's always favored elites not by rule and law since the civil rights movement in, in terms of we wiped off we wiped out a lot of the rules and laws that you know slanted things one direction and yeah i know that corporations work politicians and get rules that favor corporations and all that other stuff but when you start codifying and making it normal within culture uh, to, okay, there's this select group of people we're going to favor, and there's this other group we're not going to favor. They don't have the same rights, benefits, concern as everyone else. That's a country I don't want to live in, and I don't think, you know, for my 54 years, that's not what this country has been about. Uh, I want to switch and pivot and just talk some sports, and I want to start with... Um, a topic that it's impossible to ignore 
for me not to ask an NBA referee about, particularly one with 36 years of service, Tim Donahue is probably the most famous NBA ref of all time. And not because of years of service, not because he was the best referee in the history of the NBA, uh, not because of any particular on-court incident. Tim Donahue got run out of the league and said that uh, uh, gambling and the games were manipulated by the league office and, and that the refs were you know, part of the manipulation of the game. I want to know, what do you think just you, I don't want you to generalize about all your friends, but feel free if you want to. What is your take on Tim Donahue? Well, I don't speak for, I never will speak for any other referee. I, I, I will tell you what I think and what is my opinion, and people choose to listen, that's great. But on, on this specific matter, I, I think I probably do speak for most, if not all, of, the, of my colleagues. Um, I knew Tim fairly well. Um, I had refereed with Tim. Tim was a very good referee. Tim was a good referee, and he had a great future in the NBA. And he, uh, I'd been at his home before. Um, he had moved to Florida from Philadelphia. He, um, he had a w wonderful, beautiful wife, children, and he had a great job. And I, I, I don't know, I don't deny that Tim would have been a playoff referee, absolutely. And who knows, maybe someday a finals referee. So he had a great future. I feel sorry for Tim Donaghy. I feel sorry for him. He threw his life away because it was more, he, was, he was a greedy man. It was more important that he take care of himself first. Money, I, I, maybe he was obsessed with money. I have not seen or talked with Tim since that all came down several years ago. But he put himself, we, we as referees, we say the game is first, your partners are second, and you're third. Eddie Rush, who I think was the best partner I ever worked with in my career, one of, was one of my mentors. Ed always said that, and we as a staff have picked up on that. So if you put, if you put the game first, and you put your partners second, and yourself last, when you walk out on the floor, you know what, you got a chance to have a pretty good game. Tim didn't do that. Tim put himself first, ahead of his family, ahead of his faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, ahead of, ahead of the NBA, ahead of the profession he had worked so hard to be a part of, out of ahead of everything. And he just threw it all away. We decided to, whatever he did, bet on whatever, whatever, you know what? They brought us into the league office, I think, I was thinking about that once or twice. We all had to give depositions, statements, you know, because I'd worked with Tim. We'd all worked with Tim. Uh, you know, off the floor, um, during the off season, what was your relationships? It, it put a black mark on, on referees in general, on, on the NBA. The NBA handled it very well. I mean, I was, I, I, I mean that. I thought, hey, they were put in a tough position. This was, and I will, I will tell you that I, without question, in my umpteen, 50 years of refereeing, I have never known one referee at, a, at the high school, college, or pro level to ever do anything like that concerning the manipulation or fixing or whatever you want to call it of a basketball game. Never. And, I, I, and people are going to say, yeah, look at the market put on us. People think that we all favor teams as it is, or we favor players, or we like this guy better than that guy, or want this team to win. It's such a bunch of malarkey. It's so, it's so, who starts that? Uh, uh, media, uh, sportscasters, announcers? Because referee in the NBA certainly doesn't start it, because it's not true. Um, so back to Tim. 
I feel sorry for him. He, he, he lost his job. Now he comes on, the, comes on, shows every once in a while and says, talks about games and manipulating, which none of it is true. Um, it, it's, it's just, I, it's a shame because uh, the man threw his life away for uh, greed, for money and greed. And um, he didn't have to do that because he would have been very successful with, a, with, a, with an occupation he loved and money if he wouldn't have done that. So one of his talking points and one of the events that uh, make some NBA fans and sports fans believe him is the 2002 NBA Western Conference Finals, Sacramento Kings, Los Angeles Lakers. You happen to referee game four of that series, uh, but it's actually game six, I believe, that is the controversial uh, series or, or game in that series that uh, caused a lot of angst, suspicion. Uh, I think uh, we got a graphic, I think, that talks about uh, what transpired in that game uh, and all the different things that ended up favoring uh, the, the Los Angeles Lakers. There's wide free throw disparity, fourth quarter, uh, I think 13 more fouls called on the Lakers than on the Sacramento Kings. I think Vladi Divac fouled out. Chris Webber had three fouls called on him in the fourth quarter and had to play the end of the game with five and more cautious. You were involved in that series, not that game. What's your take on game six of that Kings-Lakers game? Well, I remember the series very well. A great series. One of the probably the best series I was ever a part of. I mean, Sacramento had a, had a great team. And the Lakers, of course, you know, were... Um, a dynasty or... A dynasty you know, as well. So I, mean, so, I mean, I remember the game. I, the work, oh, our game was a great game. I remember it like, uh, like it was yesterday. It, it was a great game. So, you know, whenever you work so hard in a game like that, when you come off a game like that, you're in the locker room and you're, you're tired. You're not tired physically. You're tired mentally because of the concentration level. You do everything you can to make sure that you don't, you know, put somebody to the line when he's not warranted. Call a foul that wasn't there. Miss a foul that should have been called. Whatever, whatever you want, however you want to call it. So I remember game six. I watched game six. And I remember hearing the backlash from game six. And I remember the, the, what the league will, would do was, and I'm not speaking for the league, is that they would go back, Jason, they would look at every foul that was called. They would look at every violation that was called. They would look at every play that was, that was questioned in that game. And again, I know people think I'm sticking up for referees because I'm a referee, but okay, I am. But I, I also know the people that were working the game, and they may have missed plays. There has never been an NBA game yet that we haven't missed plays. And we're going, because we're not perfect, and we're going to miss plays. These athletes are so quick, so fast, so good. But I know that not one of those plays was missed f for the reason that the media and the press tried to make it out to be. What people don't realize is I could care less whether the Lakers win. I could care less whether Sacramento wins. Does the league care? The league could care less. People think that all the time. The league likes it when there's a lot of teams that could possibly make it to the playoffs or a lot of teams that could possibly make it to the finals where a team that hasn't made it before or a player that is having success. We like that. I mean, and people try to make it as though, I mean, I mean, look at all the championships the Lakers won or the Celtics won or, or, or Michael and, and, and the Bulls won. Great. Dynasties are wonderful. 
it's especially nice for the city that it's from, isn't it? But does, do, 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 do people really care? I mean, L.A. loves it, but does... does um, L.A. is a huge TV market. I know, I understand Chicago, that. Chicago, huge TV huge, market. New York, huge TV market. And New York... Boston. Boston, yeah, huge TV market. People all Sacramento think... Sacramento, not. not. And it, <laughs> it really, and it really doesn't matter. I mean, again, it doesn't matter what Kenny Maurer says, because I'm... Nobody compared to, you know, a lot of these people that have come before me and will come after me in the NBA, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. When we're refereeing a game, I know it's difficult to believe, but sometimes I will call a foul on a player, and I don't know who the player is. I just remember the number when I go to the table. People don't believe that. They think I'm, they know, I know exactly the foul. I'm so, we're so entrenched in the game and refereeing the defensive player, or here comes the dribbler to the basket, or what, up at the rim, whatever, and I can't say... I, have, I haven't got the time, or I'm not that smart. I'm not that quick to say, oh, that's so-and-so. I don't want to call a foul on him on this play. I'm sorry, but that just doesn't exist. And it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what Steve Jabby says, Joey Crawford says, Jake O'Donnell says. It doesn't matter what any referees before me say. People aren't going to believe that, but it's, it's the truth. I would never throw my reputation away because I did or didn't call a foul on a player because I... What, I liked him or I didn't like the town of Sacramento? Um, I'm sorry, but that doesn't exist, Jason. I swear it doesn't, it doesn't exist, and the media is going to say it all the time. And again, when I miss a call or if any of the referees in game six missed a call or called something they shouldn't have missed, I guarantee you they probably didn't sleep real, real well that night. And they, they heard all of the backlash, and they heard it all, and they take it into the next season, and it bothers them like you wouldn't believe. But no, nah, they didn't. That's, that's, it's just not true. And um, if the Lakers won, they won. Uh, somebody upstairs wanted them to win that game for whatever reason, and that's the way it is. But um, nobody, nobody did anything uh, that they shouldn't be ashamed of. In that you game. mentioned a name uh, during that uh, response that I have to ask a follow-up. Joey Crawford mm-hmm. had a feud, it seemed like, for a number of years with Tim Duncan. Mm-hmm. Uh, written about, talked about. Uh, maybe Joey was disciplined at some point, I believe, by the NBA. Uh, it's, it's hard for someone like me to think Tim Duncan, bad guy in this scenario. Uh, and look, I don't know Tim Duncan, but just from afar, he seems like a really good, respectful guy or whatever. And it, to me, from afar, just like, Joey Crawford's ego overwhelmed him in his relationship with Tim Duncan. And it's just what you said about, okay, was the game first or was Joey Crawford and his ego, did he allow whatever his problem with Tim Duncan to overtake him? Do you have a take on Joey Crawford versus Tim Duncan? Oh, yes, I do. I mean, Joey is a friend of mine. Joey and I and, and families and stuff would, would vacation together. So I, I know Joey Crawford pretty well. Again, I will not speak for Joey Crawford. I know he would like to answer that. And, and he's talked to me about it. And I think that if you ask Joey, I think Joey would do things differently. Having said that, in the game, I mean, there's much more that go on in a game. A lot of things that are said. Tim Duncan's a great player. I mean, absolutely. But there are some things that are said during games that people don't hear. Um, during that game, Joey didn't like the way Tim Duncan was treating a younger referee. Remember what I said, game first, crew second, you last. And Joey didn't like the way that Tim Duncan was treating a young referee. 
And in Joey's mind, he was protecting that young referee. And then when Tim Duncan, I don't know what he did, Jason, I can't remember, threw a towel or waved his arms or whatever he did. Um, again, I'm not going to speak with Joey, but Joey is one of the best referees that's ever refereed in our league. And you talk about a guy that loved his profession. No one worked harder than Joe. No one was more disciplined than Joe. Did Joe have a temper? Absolutely. Would Joe tell you he had a temper? Absolutely. I think Joey even went to whatever, you know, and, and, and would, I don't want to say try to get help, but Joey tried to address that issue. And more power to Joe. I mean, because Joey understood that. So, yes, I think Joey reacted. Yes, I think uh, and I think Joey would tell you that. And as a result, Tim got ejected from that game. And I, I, I'm not sure, but I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure. I don't think Joey worked a playoff game that year. So the amount of money Joey lost, you know, we get rewarded for working playoff games, was unbelievable. And the way that hurt Joe to be able to not be a part of that, that playoff series or that, you know, that. And, and all of us got together and we all wanted to, you know, uh, you know, come together and, and, and come together as a, as a group and pay Joe for whatever money he lost as a staff to, because we were looking out for so Joe. referees rallied around Joey. Well, they rallied around Joe because they knew that, you know, we do make mistakes during games. And let's, if you want to talk about the scenario, fine. I know why Joe did what he did, trying to protect a young referee, didn't like the way some of the things and the actions of Donaghy and through Donaghy, and, 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 excuse me, and through Tim Duncan. Now, did, did Joe react? I think if, you, if Joe was sitting right here, he'd probably say, yes, I did. And if I had to do it over again, I probably would do things differently. Okay, having said that, Joey paid that price. Trust me. He paid that price. And um, he's one of us. And um, so we tried to rally around and, and try to compensate him in some way, shape, or form. But aside from the money, Joey, I know, went through, went through hell um, not being able to be a part of that series. And again, came out of it, came back, had, had, had a great... Joey Crawford, I think, worked 50 finals games nobody in the history of the nba has i don't think even come close to that so i was fortunate to referee joey's with him his 50th finals game and it was an honor and so um you know you can say whatever you want about joe and a lot of it is probably warranted some of the things he's done has as you know overreacted and stuff like that on the floor and off the floor and i think joey crawford would tell you that i would tell you some of the things absolutely mistakes that's how you learn but um, you think he was able to move past whatever hostility he had towards Tim Duncan? Oh, absolutely. Yes. What people don't, you know, he didn't care. I mean, I know some of the things that they carried on with after. I know they didn't, you know, they didn't, they thought Tim Donnie, I mean, that uh, Joey Carver had it out for them. Yeah. Not but. true. I mean, I mean, Joey would go back and referee, any of us would go back and referee the next game and referee it, referee it to the law. And you know what? We, people again think, we carry a ju- grudge the next day. I'll ask you this. Do you think players and coaches carry a, ju- a grudge? Without question. Day? Okay. We as referees aren't allowed to do that. I know. We okay. aren't, it, it, and if we do that, we're wrong. But trust me, um, that's not something we carry the next, hey, I might have a, situation with the player and might throw a player or whatever. And the next game, believe it or not, most of the time, I'll talk to the player. I'll go up to the player. Hey, you and I all right? Listen, I don't think I like that fourth foul on you. You know what? I understand why you got a little upset. We okay? This is what's done that people never hear. And I don't know personally if Joe ever did that with Tim Duncan or not, but, but it was... Um, did you find Duncan easy to referee or not easy, but difficult to referee? Tim Duncan could at times be difficult to referee. Tim Duncan was, a, I, I think, off the floor was 
probably one class act and a hell of a guy. I've talked with him off the floor and a great player. And, uh, but, but on the floor, Tim Duncan had his moments and he was difficult to referee and he deserved technical fouls and he was given technical fouls and he was unsportsmanlike at times. But, and again, people say, well, you favor the, the, the superstar. Oh, really? So if we give the superstar a technical foul, we're, oh, poor superstar? And if we don't give the superstar a technical foul, we're favoring the superstar. You really can't win, can you? I just thought of something that I w- wasn't thinking before this, but because I'm sitting here thinking about what I think of Tim Duncan. And okay. I think class guy, great champion. But All I of that. Ne- I need Absolutely. To re- but I need to remember, though, he played for Greg Popovich. And Popovich is one of the most condescending, and, and he's a great coach, and I'm sure he's a great guy, and there's people that will attest to that. But the way he carries himself as a coach is very condescending, very surly. Uh, he's very short and dismissive of the media, and a head coach can set a tone that his players may follow. One thing we have always said is your players often carry on the same degree of, of uh, personality or the same degree as your coach. Look at the teams. Look at all of them. You can look at Steve Kerr. Steve Kerr, how does he handle himself? How does his player handle himself? You, you can look at it. Now you go back to Mr. Coach Popovich, and again, there isn't a referee, I don't think, that doesn't respect Coach Popovich. I mean, and, and again, yes, he can be all the things that you just said, and he will tell you he can be all those things. Sometimes with the media, we can understand why Coach Popovich was like that, because sometimes the media is... Um, is uh, <laughs> they don't always ask the right question at the right. right time. How's that? Is that fair enough? So I can, I, every time when he, when he gets short, I could, I could understand why he did that. But even when he would get out of line, and even when he would act the way or whatever, the next play or the next night, or the ne- he, would, he would be one of those guys that you could go up and talk to, that you could go up and let's talk, because it was, it was over. It was over, and now we're going to the next. That's what professionals do. No matter what happens the night before, let's move forward. Some people that aren't as professional, they carry it. Coach Popovich doesn't, and that's why I respected him. The other thing I thought of when we were having this question um, is, is a conversation you and I had away from the studio. I think it was at lunch yesterday or, or dinner yesterday. Uh, you were talking about Daryl Garrison, an older referee that was in the league for a long time, a senior referee when helped train you up, blah, blah. And you told a story about how protective he was of you and other referees and how, uh, you know, in, and so that Joey Crawford story of looking out for a younger referee rings true to me because of what you told me yesterday about exactly Daryl Garrison exactly and, and how if, if you guys see one of your underlings being treated poorly, it may provoke you to act in a way you normally wouldn't. Let me tell you a story about Daryl that I think I, I, I don't know, I've, I've told it before, not very often. I didn't know, I don't know whether Daryl Gerritsen loved me or hated me my first 15 years in the league. I never knew. I mean, that's just the way he was. He was just a guy that was tough to get close to. Daryl Gerritsen forgot more about refereeing than any of us know. He wrote the book. He wrote the manual. He developed the three-man system. Daryl Gerritsen is, is, I mean, to us as referees, we all have great respect for Daryl. Now, was Daryl Gerritsen a people person? I don't think anybody will tell you that, and I don't think Daryl Garrison would tell you he was, and he didn't care. He had an arrogance about him that he ha- handled himself in such a way. But as a partner, there weren't too many guys. I don't care if Daryl Garrison liked me or hated me. I don't care what he, 
But then when I was on the floor with him that day, Daryl Garrison was the best partner that you could ask any referee. They enjoyed refereeing with Daryl. One game, one time, I, early on in my career, I was having problems with, with coach, coach Larry Brown. And I would love to talk to Larry Brown. I would love to be in his company again. I'd like to, I'd like to hug him. I'd like to say hello. I'd like to apologize for some of the calls I probably missed. But we had a tough time. And um, I, think I, I think I ejected him like four times in a row from different time, four times when I saw him. So one time I had a game. I was in Under Forget. I was in Utah. And I was refereeing with a, a, a referee named Billy Sarr. It was back during the two-man system. So I think it was in my first two or three years in the league. And um, my partner, Bill Sarr, a retired police officer with the New York Police Department, wonderful man, and um, very good referee. He, he had a call down one end, and I'm running down the other end of the floor, and Larry Brown's yelling at me. I'm, I'm, five, I'm five, 10, I'm 160 pounds soaking wet, and Bill's probably 230, and he's a retired, and he's a big burly guy, and Larry Brown's yelling at me. And I'm looking at him, and I'm going, why are you yelling at, I'm thinking to myself, the place is going nuts, why are you yelling at me? Comes down the floor, well, I, I, I issue my job. One thing I was never afraid to do was give techno fouls. And again, it wasn't... Yes, we know that. We'll get into that shortly. It wasn't always at the right time. It wasn't, it wasn't always right. I, 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 miss, I probably misplays led up to it. But you have to earn your weight when you come in the NBA. Referees that are scared and don't take care of business, as we were taught, usually don't become successful referees. So a lot of times I wasn't always right. But I gave him a techno foul. And then what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to walk away. And I didn't walk away. I walked right at him. And he came on the floor and walked right at me. And we yelled and screamed, and I, I used words that I probably should never have used, and he did the same thing. After we was over, I said, okay, we're done, right? You know, he said, yep, we're done. Well, then when I turned my back, he called me a no good, whatever, and so I turned and I threw him. And um, next day, I knew I was going to get a phone call. Rod Thorne was our boss. Rod Thorne hired me. Again, what a great man, Rod Thorne. He's in the Hall of Fame now, and he, he hired Steve and I early in my career in 1986. I've always had great respect for him, but I knew I was going to be in the, in the toilet. I knew that. So he calls me up. He says, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to fine you for what you did last night. I said, yeah, I, I figured you were get the, I was going to get the phone call, you know. Well, I'm going to fine you $500. You know, you knew you should have walked away. That's all I'm asking is you walk away. The technical file was warranted. You should have walked away. You're right. I said, but you know, you know, Rod, it was probably the best $500 I ever spent. He said, well, how about if I make it 1000 I said, no, 500 is fine. And so hung up the phone and left, and I thought it was over with. Well, about a week or two later, I can't remember where I was. I knew I, was, I, was, I had a game with Daryl that night. He was, our, he was a referee and supervisor for, for, for a year, for a couple years there. And he calls me on the phone down in my room. He says, hey, come on up here. I got something for you. And I go, oh, boy, I'm in trouble again. You know, I was in trouble all the time back early in my career, you know, for, you know, young referee, giving technical fouls, ejection people. I never knew if I was going to make it to the next year. And he called me into his hotel room. I knocked on the door. I went in. He said, hey, come here. He said, what time? We're leaving at 5 o'clock. Is that okay with you? I said, great, Daryl. Looking forward to it. He goes, here, take this. He said, get out of here. He says, I was proud of you. And I walked down the hall. I'm walking down the hall of the hotel room, and you have no idea. I mean, come on. I'm in my second or third year in the league. I'm, I'm, I'm peeing my pants right now because I'm thinking, you know, what is this? He's going to give me a letter that says, you know, this is your last year or something. He gave me back the $500. So... You know, you know, I don't get emotional, too many things, but I mean, to think that your boss is going to, I mean, that, so when the going got tough, and when you were really in a tough situation, and he didn't get it from the NBA, I think it probably came from his own pocket. He wouldn't have called the NBA and says, give me that $500 back that you find Maurer. And he gave it, and so, so those are, those are the things, you know, you want to go to war for a guy like that. You want, he, you know, he's got, he's, he's, 
He's going to take it. He's got your back. Even, even when, I, whether I was right or wrong, he, that was his way of supporting me. And that's what helped me. Uh, that's why I, I will always, I always, I don't, you know, there's, there's, there's better referees than me. There's going to be better referees than me. I hope younger guys are. There was better referees before me. I tried as hard as I could. I, was, I tried, you know, and I, and I loved the profession. I worked hard at it. But, um, you know, I, I take pretty great, good pri great pride in it. I, I don't, there wasn't a better partner. I, I worked hard as a partner, and I, I, work, I enjoyed working for young guys because of the example I just gave you. So when you were here last time, you said one thing that uh, nearly made my head explode. Uh, it was the craziest thing I thought I'd ever heard. Uh, you were the guy that likes Russell Westbrook and thinks he's a, a great guy and easy yeah, to referee. I respect Russell Westbrook. I think he's a heck of a player. He plays hard every night, and I respect the way he handles my profession. Uh, yes. God. And so uh, I, Westbrook is in controversy uh, again. Uh, he had a little press conference Monday night where, you know, he says he's protecting his family because people are calling him West Brick. Skip Bayless calls him that on his TV show and uh, fans in arena shout West Brick or chant West Brick uh, from time to time. I, I think you're the perfect person to ask. You're a referee. Things get yelled and shouted at referees all the time. You guys, you know, got alligator skin it just or duck skin. Who, whose skin does water roll off of or things? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Who's got the thickest skin? I, you got, and, you, and look, I know you guys are, generally speaking, older and more mature than the players, and maybe that's the explanation, but I, I just want to give you a chance to massage your thoughts on, <laughs> on Russell Westbrook or give him some advice on... <sighs> I wish I could, I wish I could... Westbrook? I, I, I wish I could talk to him. I wish I could... I, I, maybe he'd listen, maybe he wouldn't, but... but um. It's not the first time he's had controversy. He, he, that's, that's the way he is. That's part of the reason that I respect him. He's not, he's not afraid of controversy. He's not afraid to say things that he means. I, I respect a lot of the players when they do that. I, I, I think that that's, that that's what they, they, they should do. Now, in this situation, yeah, he's had a little bit of a tough time. I, I follow the game. I know what's going on with him. He's, you know, I, again, shooting a lot of bricks. Who starts the Westbrook? Who starts all that stuff? The commentators, the media. Sports all, fans. Oh, well, okay. Sports fans oftentimes follow guys like you. They do that. They, they, they listen to Let you. Let me tell you why you're wrong. Okay. Go back to even high school sports, which I'm sure you refed high school oh, sports. Oh, I did. And so great high school rivalry. The student section's going to yell at whoever their rival players are. That's not because of the media. I get it. That's because that's what sports fans do. I'm not saying that sports fans and not all sports fans are – are, are, are uh, you know, that intelligent and know exactly what they're doing or why they're doing it. They're following. But again, back to Russell. Um, yeah, do I, do I think he should have gone to the media? Again, this is my opinion. I would tell him to his face because I, no, he shouldn't. He should let it go. You're going you're gonna to get the good with the bad. I've been criticized for 25, for my whole career, 30 some years. And I've never gone on the media and, and, and been able to confront and give my side. And, you know, that's just the way it is. You take the high road. You, you know, Russell's been very successful. He's going to continue to be successful. Again, I know he's acquainted with his family, and if there's some, if he's sincere with that, I understand. But I, I, I think the better way, and again, it's just my opinion, would be to just, just don't, don't acknowledge the criticism. It's like you know what 
what you were saying the other day, or I listened to, to Morgan Freeman. If you acknowledge racism over and over and over, you're perpetuating the idea that there's racism. So Russell Wetbrook, just drop it. Leave it alone. It'll go away much sooner than if you continue the narrative with speaking out and defending yourself. And the other thing about, and I know refs are older and more mature, but refs aren't making $40 million. You know, refs, the good refs are making five, dollars $600,000. And you guys put up with a lot of abuse. Uh, virtually, there's almost no reason to talk about the refs unless you're bad-mouthing them. And I understand, the NBA has always said that. No comment is the best comment. And, and, and they're right because of situations like this. That's why people ask me if I have an Instagram account. No, I wouldn't, I don't even know, I'm, I'm computer illiterate. But even if I did, I wouldn't be responding to these people because all you're going to do is continue, it's going to go back and forth, it's going gonna, it's gonna to elevate the situation more than it has to be. So I don't think Russell acquaints what's going on with the fact he makes a lot of money. I don't think a lot of people do. I mean, I, I, I want the player to make as much money as they can. If, if, if that's what the market is, 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 is saying, that's what they should, that's what, you know, the owners are, are wealthy people. The NBA is doing very well. But again, I, I, yeah, I, I think if you, I'd like to see him just leave it alone. That's all. I, I'm going to go back. In football, they talk all the time, and they talk about it in all sports, but it's all often talked about in football. The amount of talent you have will determine how much BS the organization will put up from you. And so if you're Patrick Mahomes or Tom Brady, the Chiefs, Buccaneers, Patriots, man, they're going to put up with a lot because, wow, you can really play. And, and I wish it would become commonplace for athletes or celebrities to understand the amount of money you make will be directly correlated to the amount of grief you may have to take over social media or from whatever talking head on TV. And so if the price of that $40 million paycheck from the Lakers is Skip Bayless is going to call you Westbrook, Westbrick on TV, and people are going to tweet at your wife, Westbrick, or criticism of you, one, I tell my wife, get off social media, uh, delete your account. Uh, there's nothing good there. Now, I, 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 that's, and then, two, I would tell Westbrook, man, like, $40 million? You know how much you can do for your kids and their kids <laughs> with $40 million and all you got to do is ignore a handful of idiots that call you Westbrook? That's a, I, would, I would take that deal. Every day of the week, I think I think anybody would, and I think he would too. And I, I just, uh, like I say, it's uh, he took it personal, and I, I think sometimes you just have to step back and 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 let the naysayers talk. All right, we're gonna take a little break here. Uh, we got a lot more, but I, I just kind of want to take a stop here as we transition uh, to some other topics. And I want to tell you about uh, my good friends at Good Ranchers. Inflation is at an all-time high, and it's hitting us hard, especially at our grocery stores. That's why you need to see our friends over at Good Ranchers. They only source and sell 100% American meat from local farms and ranches, and will ship it directly to your door. Once you subscribe, your price never goes up. Inflation won't impact you at Good Ranchers because 
your best price is locked in for life. Get your $30 discount on prime steaks and better than organic chicken today. Go to goodranchers.com fearless right now. Good Ranchers takes the guesswork out of the grocery store by sourcing everything from local farms and shipping it to your door. Use my code FEARLESS and enjoy your box of 100% American meat and your $30 savings. Order now to combat inflation with Good Ranchers. American meat delivered. Are you listening to that deal? The way inflation is skyrocketing and you can lock in a price for life uh, with Good Ranchers. Guys, I, I tell you, you know, Every week, every time I talk about Good Ranchers, there's a lot of reasons to support them. And at the top of the list is because they support you and a point of view that you respect. But now that you can lock in an inflation-proof price for your meat, seafood, and chicken, you're a fearless Army soldier. You need to be getting on goodranchers.com fearless and locking in those savings. All right, more with Ken Maurer next. All right, welcome back. Uh, we're going to continue our conversation with longtime NBA referee Ken Maurer. Uh, you guys remember Ken from his last visit here two weeks ago where he talked about being run out of the league over the vaccine mandate. Well, now we're just talking a little sports and NBA and his long history with the league. Uh, and so, Ken, I, I kind of coming off the Russell Westbrook thing, uh, different environments have different energies, different cities, different histories. Some places I would imagine the crowd is more into it, a little rougher on referees than other places. Did you have any particular arena or city where the fans were most hostile? It was like, oh man, I got a ref here. Uh, and did you have any places where like, oh, I can't wait uh, to ref in this arena with these fans? and? It really energizes me. Well, they kind of go hand in hand. I mean, believe it or not, the people that were the craziest, the people that were the most passionate about their team, where the fans were the, it was the loudest. Those are the arenas I and most of my colleagues would say they want to go to. That's, that was the arena they wanted to be part of. That they, it was just, uh, you, you feel it. Your high from refereeing is acquainted with these people going crazy and oftentimes at you. So people think that that bothers us. It really doesn't. It really, maybe early in your career, maybe your first or second year, you can, you know, some of the 20,000 are coming down on you for a play you may or may not have missed. That can be tough on it. But after a while, it's, you almost welcome it. And I know I did. So arena. Hold, hold, before you get to any particular arena. Go ahead. That kind of fascinates me and kind of blows me away because it, it, it seems like, in order to do your best work, you'd want a little more peaceful, tranquil. Uh, just, you don't have people on your back. You can just do your job and focus in on making making sure the right call, wrong call, whatever. But it works. The energy of the crowd makes you sharper the same way it makes the players sharper. sharper. I was just going to say the same thing. Exactly. You ask any player, would they want to play in a, in a COVID arena? Or they want to play in a finals arena, name it, name, name, you know, any arena. They'd say they'd want to play when it was loud and crazy. And they missed that. The, the, the games weren't the same. You could see the refereeing in the bubble, refereeing in the yeah. bubble, refereeing with no people in the stands. I mean, I'm not saying people play for fans, but they do. I mean, player, fan, 
players do. And, and referees, we're not playing for the fans because usually they're yelling at us, but it's the same, we feel the same way. So any referee, I think, worth his weight in salt would tell you they love going to Portland. I mean, it's the only game in town. It's the only, do they have baseball there? Do they have hockey there? Do they have football there? They have base- and their fans love their trailblazers. And that place is from every, for, I used to go there at camps before I was even hired 40 years ago. And they'd get people, they'd sell out the, the arena for, for a summer league game. And the people were passionate and they'd yell and they'd scream and they'd, some of them would be ugly. And when you're young in your career, you think, oh, I don't like that guy and he's ugly and, you know, the horrible things he's saying to me in the front row. And by my 15th year, I'm going to dinner with him after the game and we're friendly. So, I mean, you, 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 it just, it's, cra- it's crazy how it works. I mean, I've seen the same fans at arenas for 30 years. And it's, it's their true, they love the game of basketball. The, that those seats cost them a lot of money. They love the game. Of, they don't care if they're seen. They love the game of basketball. And those are the people you like to be around. So Portland was always one of my favorite arenas to go to because the people were so passionate. And when I say nuts, I mean that in a, in a, in a, in a, in a good way. Golden State. I mean, they're in that new beautiful arena now. And it, it is beautiful. Trust me, over there in San Francisco. But I used to love to go over to Oakland, tough part of town. I used to stay in a hotel at the Holiday Inn, not too far from the Oakland where there were, there were chains and there were locks and there was gates on the doors a- after midnight. And yet I couldn't wait to go to Oakland to referee because the fans there, even when, when they had Coach Nelson there and they, were, they, were, they weren't winning much or they were having, before the, you know, the yeah. good success they've had recently um, was Coach Kerr. But, but oh my gosh, it was, it, you couldn't wait to, I couldn't wait to get in that place. The place was loud and the fans and the people at the table and the people in the arena were always so friendly and, and couldn't wait, to, couldn't wait to, to go to that arena. So that's Utah, same way. Utah, Mormons? I always tell people Mormons, I, I don't know, I know a few Mormons you know, because of their faith, but they're crazy. They, they just love, again, only game in town. Is there any pro football team there? Is there any pro? It's, it's the only game in town. And they love their jazz. And going all the way back to the old, old arena before the new one. And um, always loved to go there because it was, when you get people in the stands and, and you've got 20,000 people, every, every arena looks the same when you're sitting on the floor looking around. I mean, there's 20,000, all you're seeing is people. But, but when the people, it's what, what these people do and the shows and the halftime and the, and just, it's just the, the energy. And so, oh no, I, there's, I loved it when, I, I didn't shy away from that ever. And most referees don't shy away from that. And so you got to coach in the old, I mean, ref in the old Boston Garden. Yes. And now they have the new building. Yes. Uh, what are they, TD? Is that what? TD Garden or something? Yeah. yeah. Uh, anyone, obviously the accommodations in the new arena are much nicer, but for old people like myself, not the, it seemed like the old Boston Garden and so much tradition and their fans obnoxious and that kind of even their East Coast bias or whatever didn't bother me. Uh, did you prefer either one? Boston's or? another one. I would have, I would have said that next if we'd have continued to talk about arena Boston. I've always loved to go to Boston. The old arena, if you remember, the old days, everyone, everyone had to go down that one center that that hallway behind players, play, yeah. referees, yeah. coaches, everybody had to go down that center right behind the the table. Well, it wasn't always fun to go down that that hallway when they, they, they were beat, you know. And then and then you got in the locker room was about the size of your desk. 
<laughs> I mean, and the showers didn't always have heat. And, you know, you know, they used to talk about, you know, well, did they turn up the heat when the big Boston, you know, Lakers series? Well, we used to always wonder, was there, was there sometimes no heat there when, on days they got beat? Funny stuff like that, you know. So loved it. Just loved to go there, the history. And, you know, I used to watch it when I was a kid before I even got in the league. So who wouldn't want to go there, you know? Same with Madison Square Garden. Who wouldn't want to go there? But it was, it was, you know, you're looking at all the grandeur and all the banners up above. But down below... It was a very old building with very old showers, with no room to shower. You couldn't wait to get out of the locker room, as opposed to some of the, the new arena now. Oh my gosh, it's spacious, and you have all the room in the world. And so, which one did I enjoy refereeing the game in? The old arena. Which one did I enjoy after the game? The new one. <laughs> you know, mentioning Madison Square Garden made me think about uh, Spike Lee and all the celebrities in New York. Then it made me think about Los Angeles and the forum and now crypto or whatever, all the celebrities there. And, and I just heard you say that, you know, you might connect with a sports fan and end up becoming friends with them or having dinner when you come to that city. Any, any celebrity that you connected with over the course of, you know, your 36 year career? Well, some, some you may not know, some you may know, but yes, I have. And again, I've never been a, as you, I've never been a celebrity person. I mean, I, I respect their talent. I'm a big movie buff, so I, I love actors and actresses, and I love the movies, and I love entertainment. You know, I go to my share of concerts and stuff like that. But, I, I'm, you know, it's just like when you, when you get in that arena, you find out they're really, most of them, are basketball fans. They're not there. They don't even want to be seen. They just want to watch the basketball game because they're a big fan of basketball. Those are the people that I would generate or, or go to, you know, or go, go see, like I would introduce myself as you walk off the floor at, in, in, at the, at, in the Lakers game with Denzel Washington. I mean, I've always respected him as a man, as, a, as, a, as an actor. And he was, he knew my name. You know, you think to these people, they're never going to know your name. I mean, I, I, when I go up to people, I usually introduce myself, even old Players, I would introduce myself. Hello, Mr. West. This is Kenny Maurer. And he'd say, what are you talking about, Kenny? I know who you are. And he'd introduce me to his wife. This was, it makes you feel, as a young referee, it makes you, because you've respected these people. So Denzel came back. We took a photograph together. He was just so accommodating, so nice, big basketball fan. You know, I mean, um, um, David Beckham, you know, you, I, I mean, I've all, he's just sitting there right there. And I'd go over and talk to him. I'd say, you're a basketball fan. I know he said, I love the sport. I love the, we'd sit there, he'd stand up and he'd talk and we'd talk. And, you know, I didn't think he even knew my name. You know, and, and all these people, DiCaprio, you know, I mean, he's a big basketball fan. He would fly from L.A. to Boston, you know, when, when they play and just to be Nicholson. I mean, you know, you go up to Jack Nicholson. I mean, even he knew who my, he, I didn't think he knew my name. And, he, you know, I remember one time, I, I think it was Joey or somebody went up to Jack and said, you know, Jack, if you wear those pants long enough, they're going to come back in style. And he loved it. <laughs> he thought it was, he loved it. He thought that was funny. And, you know, you know and, and Lou Adler, the guy from A&M Records, sits right next to him. Big basketball fan. And all these act, you, I didn't care about them as that. I, I could care less. But, you know, I'd go over and I'd just, hey, how you doing? You enjoy the game? Yeah, Kenny, how you doing? Where are you coming from? Well, I was just in such a, where are you going next? I mean, they knew what we did. And so it was, they're really sincerely, bas- those are the people that I, that I became, you know. You're kind of sandbagging us, Kenny, because, you know, uh, I think you told me the story once that, you know, back in the 80s, uh, when you looked exactly like Pat Riley, 
uh, you know, I, th I thought you told me, weren't you dating Meryl Streep at some point because you had told no. her you were Pat Riley's brother? No, not true. No, not I, told Pat, I told Pat that I, I, I started the gel before he did. He got credit for the gel. We would laugh. Pat Riley, again, again, I, how can you not respect Pat Riley? I mean, they used to always acquaint me with Pat Riley because we both slick back our hair. Well, I got ugly, straight hair. My, out of the shower, referees all make fun of me because I got ugly straight hair. So I, did, I do this to keep it out of my, out of my way. And, and, and I don't know what Pat maybe does. This. Pat say, well, what kind of use? Well, I use it. What kind of use? I mean, these are the things on the basketball floor. Or he's a big Springsteen fan. So I would say, huge Springsteen fan. He's, he's as nutty as I am. And uh, so I would say, you know, yeah, he's in Hartford tonight. Yeah, he's at a three-day stand. This is, he's opening up there right now. We, this is what we talk. Of course, he was all business on the floor. He didn't, he didn't you know, you didn't even think he knew your name, but he did. And, but little things like that. It was just, it was fun to, to break the, just whatever was going on in the game. To, it was our way of crack, cracking a joke. But uh, no, I mean, uh, I, uh, no, I, 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 didn't know, I didn't know Meryl Streep. I never met her. <laughs> <laughs> was it maybe it was Cardi B that uh, could have been her? Could, could, could no, have been no, her? I, I, I have introduced myself, but I, I don't know her either. So I, I know who she is. All right, let's go back to on the court, uh, and uh, this is like a question. I feel like you have to ask a referee that with your long tenure of service. Uh, Michael Jordan's most famous play is Game Six against the Utah Jazz. Uh, he hits the final shot uh, against Byron Russell and the Jazz and basically ends that. Some people in Utah in particular say Jordan pushed off. We're, we're playing the play now. Other people say uh, Jordan uh, faked him out of his jock strap. Uh, there seems to be a hand in the rear end there, Kenny. Uh, you're, you're the veteran referee. Uh, fair or foul? I've seen the play a million times. We all have. And um, I'll start by saying it was fair. And here's why it's fair. Um, we as referees are taught to referee the defensive player. Mm. And in a game, I remember it was brought to my attention early in my career, if there's 100 fouls called in a game, how many are called on the offensive team? No one can I think they said 16. Maybe it's changed. Maybe it's 14, 18, whatever. 16. That means 16% of the fouls called in an NBA game are on the offensive team. So Daryl, our boss, when we were trained, said, why are you watching the ball? The defensive player is going to dictate to you 84% of the time whether he's committed the illegal act. So if you're watching the defensive player, you'll be able to see the ward off in the chest or you'll be able to see the leg kick, or you'll be able to see whatever the offensive player does to create space that would be an illegal act, therefore an offensive foul. But in this play, what we've watched, and we've watched it a million times, is if you watch Michael, everybody thinks Michael's going to the basket. But they only need two. Everybody thinks Michael's going to the basket. And I believe so did Byron, so did Brian Russell think he was going to the basket. So. He's going, and he's, he's got him, he's got him beat. I mean, he's not beat, but he's got him by a half a step. So Russell turns slightly. He turns slightly because he's got, to, he's got to get there. He's got to get to beat, and we're watching him. And then Michael stops. Well, it's all like all the step-back moves they're doing today. They get the guy going, they step back, and the guy, I mean, they make fun of some of these 
great athletes that are trying to play defense on these great offensive players. You couldn't guard this guy either. Some of the moves that Harden or LeBron or Curry, all these guys that are doing now, I mean, it's, it's amazing. And the step back. Well, never once have I heard anybody say, well, you know, he pushed him in the, in the rear end. So Michael has this move where he's got Russell going this way, and then he pulls up. Do you really think that the action of Michael Jordan with his off arm created Russell to do what he did with his body. He's 200 and some pounds. Um, look in slow motion, look at his, Michael's arm. No, I believe that was, I, I just don't think that that I was. I think good. Michael, I agree with you. I think Michael put his hand did. on him to balance he did. himself. He did. So that he could pivot back. It wasn't a push. No. It was more of a balancing move. And, 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 then, and I think he was a little bit off balance trying to guard Michael Jordan, I understand. So no, do I think that was an off? No, I do not. It's like, it's like when you're refereeing a, a player and he puts his arm on his back when they're going for a rebound. Okay, he's got his arm on his back. Jason, is that a foul? That's a foul, but this is nothing. Even when you're guarding a player, you can guard a player like this. You can put your arm right in, right in his chest. Is that a foul? No. Is that a foul? Yes. When you, you, know, when you take him off his rhythm, speed, balance, quickness, when you, you know, RSBQ, if that's what, that's what, we, that's what we're paid to do. It's, it, sure, there's judgment involved there. But again, they're men. They're 200, 350, some 320 pounds. I mean, it's, it, I'm not saying that, you know, like if the guy's beginning to jump and you push him with one finger, that's a foul. That's a foul. Because you, you got him. Some guys are so clever that, you know, if he's standing on the floor, this was nothing. But if you get him just at the right, oh boy, and you see his body go this way because he's now airborne. He doesn't have the weight on the floor. So there's so many things that go into, marginal contact is, is not necessarily a foul. Contact is a foul, but something that's marginal that you can acquaint with an everyday play, it's just part of the game. That's the difference between high school, college, professional. These guys are the greatest athletes in the world and they want you to let them play, but there can be no illegal contact. The, the thing that you said that's most interesting is that that I had never thought of and I'm not sure if many basketball fans have thought of, is that referees are basically taught to referee the defensive player. That's correct. And to focus their attention there. That's right. And, and I, 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 it makes sense from even an entertainment standpoint. The NBA, basketball, they want you scoring points. Mm -hmm. And so they want you to police the defensive players more than the offensive players. That's right. Uh, and, and so it, it, it makes sense, but I don't think, and, and Corey nods your head one way. Have you ever heard that, that the refs are taught to police the defensive player? Corey watches a lot of the NBA. I, I used to watch a lot of the NBA. I had never heard that. And so the other thing that that makes me think about when you say basically 86% of the fouls are called on defensive players, it makes me elevate my respect defensive players. Absolutely. Dennis Rodman, Bruce Bowen, Joe Dumars back when he was having a guard, uh, Michael Jordan. These guys are far more valuable than we give them credit. We get so caught up in points, but the game is actually tilted against the defensive player. And so when you can be a great defensive player, it's like you've really done something. They want scoring, and that's understandable. People like to see scoring. And, and, and it's a... Now, I'd like to know now if it's still 84% of the fouls called. And one, one ch little change we've made to refereeing in the last several years 
is traveling. Um, that's a big thing that everybody thinks NBA referees just allow traveling to take place. They do. You, are you disputing that? Yes, I am. It's not true at all. And um, if, if you, I can show you how many plays you want to bring up, and we'll come back, and I'll, sh- I'll bring 20 plays with me. And people like, you know, uh, the Greek freak. I saw LeBron James once shuffle 15 times at the three-point line, and nothing was called. And we missed it. But when you're, when you're refereeing people that are six foot ten, what are you looking at? Are you looking at their feet or are you looking at their body? I'm looking at their body. Now, if I can get way away, now I can see his feet. But if I'm too close, which is my fault, I got to get I got to get distance. I can, on the baseline sometime. I can't get far enough away to see that big man's feet in the low post. He could move his feet, and I'm going and I'm looking at this guy going like this to him and pushing him, and I'm trying to. It's difficult. Out on the perimeter, we used to miss travelings. Why did we miss travelings? Because we were taught to referee the defender. Well, now I'm looking at the defender. Now, you know, say Mike Conley's got the ball right here, and I'm looking at the defender, and Mike shuffles and goes by him. Well, Mike moved his feet, but I'm looking at the defender. I never saw it. So now we've, us older referees, especially, younger referees are better at it than we are, 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 are taking a step back. Now I have to step way, try to get back and look at, Mike's feet. Now, did Mike go boom, boom before releasing the ball? Traveling. Did he release the ball prior to lifting up his pivot foot? If he did that, then I hurry up and try to get to the defender. Because once he's put the ball to the floor, now I got to get to the defender to see, does he hand check? Does he hold him? Does he hook him? So it's changed a little bit. So many things have changed in, in our refereeing nowadays, and it's, you know, we could spend two hours on it. But it's still, you referee the defense, but we still have to get the feet for traveling. It's a fascinating, I'm just, this point you're making about refing the defensive player explains so much. And because again, the, the referee or traveling is one of the biggest jokes and people love to post social media deals. Yep. Look at it, how can they miss it? Blah, blah, blah. Yep, yep. And if people understood like, no, the primary focus on the defensive player, that's why this gets missed so often. And, and then if you factor in the ref isn't refing the game from TV, where there's a much wider screen Absolutely. and you can see eight, so right. ten, all ten players or whatever. But you know, call, refereeing the game from TV, uh, you're more prone to see traveling. Absolutely. Than some of the other stuff that you guys are actually taught to referee. No question. Here's one thing we even do. Let's say you're on the baseline. You know the game very well. You're on the baseline. You're not that far away from that, those little post players. Now, because it's difficult for us to see all seven feet, it's difficult for us to see the push in the back, the hook, the hold, and the feet. We get as wide as we can. We ask for help from the trail because the trail has the same look as that TV person that you were just talking about. He can see everything. That trail referee isn't even looking at waist up. He's just looking at feet so he can help his lead referee, if there's nothing going on on that side of the floor except that one-on-one play in the post, now he can help that lead referee who can't see feet. He can't get the, if he gets down here, he misses the clap in the head. The clap in the head. So that's, that's part of refereeing. People don't, guy comes through the lane, they want freedom of motion. Guy goes and goes, bam. Well, if you're watching just the guy come through the lane, you're never gonna see that. We're taught to pick up the defender that doesn't allow freedom of movement. So. Again, it's, it's, it's fascinating, and it's, um, again, people think we just put on a jersey and walked on the floor and put on a whistle and referee the game. True, 
basketball aficionados, they, they know what people that have watched us referee, you know, they, they, they understand the game and it's, it's, uh, is, is there any way, cause this has been part of what I've wanted in the NFL and I, having this conversation now, I even wanted in the NBA. Is there any way to add a fourth ref to the NBA who refs from TV, who assists the referees from TV on, on any play? They do that, and that's in, in two forms. That's kind of like the replay center during the season. There's three referees, a referee in every arena, but they've got replay referees refereeing every game in Secaucus. So that's when we started with, I don't know what it was, three or four instant replay reviews. Now there's 13, 14, 15, 18, whatever there is. So we have different criteria to get over there. Ask that fourth referee to help us. During the playoffs, there are four referees. One is sitting in the locker room, working with the replay center to try to help correct plays that, that are, are reviewable matters. But I hope, Jason, that they never take out the, the element of the referee, you know, the, the human element of the referee making a mistake. We're going to miss travelings. We're going to miss. You like that? No, I don't. I, I don't. I, I don't like to. I, I will, but I will never referee uh. a perfect game. And I don't think too many players are going to ever play a perfect game. And the player and the coach and the referee, they all know that. We're just trying to do the best job we can. And I, I, again, if we're missing a call on one team, probably missed a call on that other team sometime during the game, too. What do you think? Perhaps. Now, I know you're the refereeing unicorn, so I hate to even ask this question, uh, but maybe you can answer for the non-unicorn uh, NBA referees. Uh, the other thing fans believe, and most sports writers believe, is that the marquee superstar player gets preferential treatment. And, and to some degree, I think people think like, and they should. People are paying good money to see Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, LeBron James. They're paying a lot of money to see these guys play. And I don't want to see them sitting on the bench in foul trouble after I done paid all this money. Uh, so, uh, well, I guess the, is there preferential treatment of superstars? I guess the first thing I would ask, and then I would love to answer the question, is who started that? Who started it? Who started that so-called... Refs who give players special treatment, they started yeah. it. <laughs> who started that? I call it rumor. Uh, started that just... People's eyeballs started that. Well, my opinion is, is that I think the media or sportscasters or um, ex-players or, or whatever started that. Yeah, the players contend this. Well, you know, you're not going to get too many ex-superstar players that are doing commentating that are going to say that. You might get your players that maybe weren't ex-superstar players that are going to go. But let me answer the question. The, the question is, is that I would reverse it. I would say just the opposite. I would say that the marquee players don't get, I don't want to say enough. That's not the right word. What's the right word here? My vocabulary. They don't get... Their fair share? They don't get their fair share. And I'll give you an example. Shaquille. I mean, what a, what, I mean, what a mammoth man what a, in the post. They, no one could guard him. They changed NBA rules because of him. We all know that. Well, Shaquille would go to the post. He'd turn. He'd do this and that. And he'd finish. And many times Shaq was getting fouled 
as he was finishing, and we just say, well, he made the basket. We don't need to call that. He finished anyway. Let's talk Michael. Let's talk Michael. Mike, Michael was so good. The plays of the basket, what he did on the baseline, going to the hole, people trying to hand check him, hook him, hold him. Many times Michael Jordan would finish, and we would, we would, we would not call fouls because that was, that was Michael. He finished. And it goes all the way with LeBron and Kobe, all of them, all the great ones. Um, and so I tell people, you know what? They're just better. They're just better players. And I don't, I don't think they want any preferential treatment. They don't need preferential treatment. Well, they want to be treated fairly. Well, they're great athletes, and they want, they want to compete. You think Kobe Bryant wanted preferential treatment? He, all he wanted to do was go out there and compete. Michael, they, wanted to, they came right at you. So, no, they didn't want any preferential treatment. They just wanted to be treated like any other athlete, like any other player on the floor. And I think oftentimes we probably miss more plays on them than other players. I believe that. The other thing I'll say now that I, particularly with your point about focusing on defensive players, the superstars are all great scorers. Yes. And so... Uh, I, I think the fact that less fouls are called on them is because they're primarily scorers. They're not, you know, primarily defensive players or that's not, you know, they exert the most energy on the offensive end of the floor Great point. Great point. And, and not at the defensive end of the floor. And so... Uh, they're offensive moves. They work on them constantly from birth. I mean, they're, and so they're not making up moves that are going to be illegal. They know what's illegal. They know what they can and can't do offensively. Now, defensively, they also know the same thing. But you're right. I mean, some of them are, hey, Michael's a great defensive player. I mean, Kobe's a great defensive player. LeBron's a great. These people are also good on, 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 they're good at both ends. But what you just said, I agree with in that, you know, if, if they're, not gonna, they're not going to commit fouls very often on the offensive end. And therefore, they're usually not ones that are in foul trouble come the end of the game. So one of the things the NBA has lost, I believe, is rivalries uh, among players or, heck, even now among teams. I don't think there are rivalries. Uh, and, and so this is kind of an obvious question, but the Magic-Larry Bird rivalry of your 36-year career that that was the epitome, that was the top of the line? And yeah, I, I, I would say so. And I was awful young to even be able to appreciate it. But And it'll go back to an earlier question that we made. You know, everyone thinks that they want all these, they just want the marquee franchises like the Lakers and the Bucks. No, the NBA would. They want. They want all these teams to be to be equal and to, and, and to be. It, it 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 bides well for the league. They're sharing revenue anyway. So I mean, it bides. They want them all to be successful. And so, yes. But back then, it was the Lakers and it was Boston. Or sooner after that, it came um, Chicago. And I used to always say, you know, Detroit or Michael against Detroit. I mean, and and. I just think that people, they try to make something out of, you know, Cleveland and Golden State later on. That sells newspapers. That, that's great media coverage. And, and I think, but I was too young to really appreciate it. But yeah, I mean, that sets the stage for the entire NBA. I mean, Magic and Bird and L.A. and, and Boston. And it was a great rivalry. And it was, they, it was everything they made it out to be hype-wise, it was justified. And so, but today they're trying to get every franchise to be good. And every owner wants to win an NBA title. And everybody, and, and they all think that we're, you know, the league has to be successful if the marquee franchises are successful. I, I, I don't know. 
I understand that, but I don't know if I totally agree with that. So I don't want to put you in position where you sound like the old man standing on the lawn. My day was better, blah, blah, blah. But most people my age and above think, and you're older than me, that the Magic, Bird, Michael Jordan, Isaiah Thomas era in terms of competitive intensity blows away what we have now. I think it's the style of play now. I mean, you know, how many points would Pete Maravich have scored in college had they had a three-points line? And so now you know, they've opened up the floor and they've come out here. And years ago, I mean, there were a few great shooters when I started. Now there's a lot of great shooters. Everybody shoots in the perimeter or else you don't play. Big men come out to the perimeter and shoot. Otherwise, they don't. I mean, that's just the way it is now. So it, the game has totally changed. And it was more physical back then. And then it got too physical. That's why we put in the flagrant foul one, flagrant foul two. Did it get too physical? I, th- I think it did. I think um, you look at plays back then when, you know, Rambis is, 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 is almost had his head cut off on the drive to the basket with the Lakers. It's, it's, uh, things like that, different plays. Michael, some of the plays that, that went on with him, the things that, you know, Yes, I, th- I think it was getting too physical. And the NBA is saying, hey, we want these players. Sure, the players want to play a long career, but they, they, people come to see these players. They, they shouldn't be hurt. So I, I think it was good that they, I think it was getting a little too physical. However, do I think, you know, the team play and the, the pick and the roll and go to the basket and, and, and the style of the Knicks back in the 70s or, or the San Antonio Spurs in the, in the 90s, early 2000s. I mean, it, it, now, you know, you get the rebound, you move the ball up the floor quickly. And you shoot a three, or you take the ball and you dunk, or you take the ball the hole, you hit to the corner, and you shoot a three. That that's that's primarily what the game is today, and it's it's a very exciting for the fans. Back when, you know, years ago, it would be the dunk. I mean, phenomenal. What see a guy do that? Now it's what it's the three. I mean, look what Steph Curry can do, or Thompson, or look what all these Damian Lillard. Look at all these great shooters. What they can do. I mean, phenomenal what they can do. So I would have to think it's easier to referee now than when you first came into the league, although you have to be in better cardiovascular shape probably now than back the, you know, the that, pace. That's, I've, that's, a, that's a really a great question. I, I, I don't know if it's easier, but there's, there's easier one-on-one situations to referee now because it's so much in the open. Back then it was post-play, boom, boom. What, what do you let go? What, what do you not call? What do you, there was a lot more judgment, I think, back then because there was so much more post-play. There's so much more, more going on. Contact. It's contact, inside the free throw line extended, drives to the basket. Now it's so much more, you know, it's more, more, maybe more, a little more black and white. It's, it's more you're out on the floor and there's a hand check or there's a hook or there's a hold or there's an illegal pick. Everything's farther out away from the basket now so that you're able to, it's, it's more, a little bit more open. So, um, yeah, I don't know if it's easier, but it's, it's definitely, um, it's definitely um, more, more open. It's definitely more um, there aren't as many plays that I don't see because there was so much congestion in, in the lane. There was more players out in the open. Does he get hit on the arm or does he not get hit on the arm? But I mean, you're coming around a pick and you're seeing and you're over there and does the guy like, you know, I just went like this three times. How many times I hit my arm? That's, that's, that's hard to see. You know, here you can see how many times I hit, but here you can't. But here, 
You can't. So it depends on what angle you're looking at. So to get that, did the guy get hit on the arm from out there? That's very, very tough to see because these guys are so good at, at this. I mean, how many didn't have a lot of that back then? There was none of that out there, very little of that. It was all inside, refereeing the post, physical. So it's easier in many regards, but it's also, and then the scrutiny with the instant replay and all these camera angles and every play that you miss is scrutinized, you know, by ESPN or YouTube or whatever, you know, the rest of, you know, the next next 10 years. So it's it's a lot more open for people to see when we have mistakes. Back when I first started, there wasn't, there was none of that, you know. Back in the day when there was all that physical post play, people used to argue, hey, uh, let's widen the lane, let's get the international lane in here. Now I, there's no cause for that because virtually nothing goes on. <laughs> in the lane other than someone getting posterized and dunked on. Do, have you ever coat, I mean, refed in the international game with the wider lane? Do you think it would add anything to the NBA now at this point? I think you answered the question very well. No, not now. No, I don't. Back when there was Kareem or there was Wilt or there was Shaq or there was, you know, Russell and those guys. Yes, I think it would have opened up the lane for a lot more this but now I think that's that's well said the only rule that we, they talked about years ago when when uh, Commissioner Stern was was still the commissioner is that you know the, the goaltending the international where the ball hits the rim and it goes up and it stays in the cylinder now you go get it I mean it's very difficult to see goal that goaltending is a very very difficult call to see and um, if they played the international rule it would make it very very well, Kenny, easy. if you were over 6-2 it would be easy. That would help too. That would help too. But there, yeah, that would help too, but there are Muggsy Bogues, it's tough. Yeah, the, exactly. And <laughs> I've had I've had to deal with that. There are guys even shorter than me though. But I mean um, but I mean it depends on what angle you get from the floor. That would have been something that we would have been open to changing and I think maybe a lot of people would but the league didn't want it so we never did it. Here's the topic that I, there's a lot of conversation about trash talk in the NBA. And man, Larry Bird was one of the greatest trash talkers. And this guy or that guy was a great trash talker. Uh, you got a front row seat to all the trash talking. Sometimes I've sat courtside and I could hear the trash talking or whatever. I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, as, as a referee, I'm not asking about a fan experience, but as a referee, I think I would be a little bit concerned, like, hey, the trash talking is going to eventually lead to some sort of confrontation. H how did you feel about trash talking? Early on in my career, there was, I don't know if it's as much, but there was a lot of trash talking. But a lot of it was about the game. A lot of it was about you have no idea I'm going to shoot this shot right now. There's nothing you can do about it. I'm going right over your head and boom. He would do it. Or the next, next time down the floor, I'm going to take you right to the basket, and I'm going to end up at the hole, and there's no way you can stop. I mean, there'd be, you know, they, it was a little bit more about the game. Now, sometimes when we have had confrontation, it's sometimes gotten personal. So there's almost a different, so now the NBA just, they don't want trash talking, period. They don't like trash, because trash talking leads to what you just said, leads to confrontation. And then you've got, then you've got. Well, why didn't the end, why didn't the referee take care of business beforehand? Why did he let it get out of control? What was said? Why didn't he do this? What? So we st we put a stop to it right away. That's why, like, if, if you go up and you'll dunk a basketball, that's playground. And then you'll come down and you'll you'll point at the guy or you you'll give him like this. And you would. That's an automatic technical foul. They want. That's a form of trash talking, intimidating, you know, disrespect. Yeah, they want that stopped. And I think it's. I think it's a good rule. I think that's that. That leads to confrontation, which leads to fights, 
which they don't want. So I think it's they want that call. So you guys have been advised to tamp down and I'm talking about the verbal trash talking that's been told to be tamped down as well as any gestures physical. Gestures physically. Absolutely. We don't hear, believe it or not, a lot of the trash talking. We don't hear it. We can pick it up. Sometimes if somebody says something, you didn't hear a lot of when Larry Bird trash talked. You didn't hear a lot of what he said. The players knew he did it, and, 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 and it would be talked about after, but as a referee, I mean, Larry's over there in the corner, and the ball's right here in the post, and I'm reading the post, and Larry's telling the guy, wait till I get the ball, I'm going to beat you. I didn't, I'm, I'm not listening to that, but again, it was a lot more about, we found it to be a lot more about the game. So, yes, anything that's visible, trash talk, intimidation, after a dunk, whatever, they want that called. Um, trash talking, if, if I see a lot of trash talking, if referees see a lot of trash talking, and they think it's going to that next level, then you will step in and you will address it. As a fan, and, and I did not, and I apologize for not telling you yesterday, because this is a kind of volatile question I'm about to ask, and I, I should have given you okay. a heads up. But as a fan, I've heard the N-word tossed around on the NBA court way too often for my taste. And I'm, do, do you hear that? And do referees talk about that? Well, it's funny because I'll, I'm not afraid to say it here, and I will, but it's funny because, yes, it is. Anytime I hear the N-word, I give a technical foul and or throw them. I just do. And you know what, if you want to come back to me, NBA, and tell me that that's not a good idea, tell me. I've never been told not to. So, because that leads to, what did you say? That leads to confrontation. Because oftentimes, it isn't said in a good light. Well, it's not a term of endearment. Not a term of endearment, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I mean, I remember a playoff game where I was, you know, I'm not going to name the players, but the player reached out to another player and said, and, and used the N-word, said, hey, man, you can't... Uh, and so I, you know, I'm a woman. I, I, I think I just threw him. I can't remember. And I, I remember Coach Popovich said, what did he say? So I w- left the lane. I walked right out to him. I said, Coach Popovich, here's what he said. Turned around, walked right back to his bench. So, again, I can't speak for other referees. I think I will. I think I can in saying any time that you hear that, that's addressed. That should be. But again, Sometimes they're going to say, hey, this is my this is my boy. This is my guy. You know, I've known each other. I said, well, you know what? I don't know that. And I'm sorry. Now, if I can detect that and I can I can I can see that these are really two or I know that already because I know these the history of these two players. Now I say, well, this is not necessary tonight. I don't care whether you talk about it later after the game. I might. But for the most part, I don't know that. I'm not privy to that. So if I've heard it, it's usually in a derogatory, stated in a derogatory way. I give the player a technical foul and, and or uh, ejection. But to be honest with you, I haven't heard it that often. If it happens a lot, I haven't heard it that often. But again, sometimes they say, hey, this is just the way I talk to them. And, you know, I've even, I've even had players and, and referees say, well, hey, man, they're just, they're just, they're just, they're just having fun. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but you know what? I, 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 don't, I don't understand that. I don't think it's right. I don't no. think it's, you know, I, you know and, and so I don't care if it, you know, and it's usually between two black players. Yeah. Well, what if it happened between a white player and a black player? Am I not supposed to address it then either? It's just not, I'm not going there. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm going to address it all the time. All right, so 
you're you're on the court. I'm fans. We have all these debates. Who's the most clutch? Who, who's who's the player at the end of a game that's gonna make the key clutch plays? Or, or, or is is the referee's perspective on that perhaps any different from our own? I mean, obviously we think of Michael Jordan, Larry Bird, Kobe has that reputation. Uh, I think someone like uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is left out of that conversation. But to me, he's the most clutch player in the history of the NBA. He, he, he had the unstoppable sky hook that can't be blocked. You could toss it into him. He's going to either unleash that sky hook. If you foul him, he's going to go to the free throw line and make 75, 78% of his free throws. If you go double teaming, Kareem was going to make the pass to Worthy or Magic cutting down the lane. And so when I think of the most clutch, I think of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. No one else agrees with me, but I'm just, from a ref's perspective, and just as a basketball fan, your, your point. I refereed him right at the end of his career. And he, and I still am very, hello, Kareem, how are you? He's, he's professional, but he's very quiet, very withdrawn. I don't know him at all. I mean, he's always been professional around me. And, 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 but I mean, abs- absolutely. I didn't see, I didn't referee Jerry West. I didn't referee Oscar Robertson. So if there are three guys you got to say those three guys. I mean, Jerry West made quite a few clutch shots, too. I mean, too many to mention. And Oscar Robertson, too. I mean, triple doubles. He did, he did it all. I mean, back when there was before even television. I mean, what, what he was doing. And when he had the ball, he'd back, boom, boom, boom. So those three players is what, what they were, not so much cream, but they were before my time. So nowadays, with all the social media and all the baby boomers and all that, all they're talking about now is, of course, they talk about LeBron. They talk about Michael. They talk about Kobe. And they're right on all of them. I mean, they're absolutely right. But, I mean, those are the three that you probably talk about now because they've done it so many times. And even look at Damian Lillard, some of the things he's done. But, I mean, it's, it's all about longevity. Kobe did it for 19 years. LeBron's been doing it for, what, 17, 17 19, 19, 19 years. years. I mean, uh, you know, Michael did it for, you know, 16, 17 years. And so, you know, maybe Damien will come in that or maybe Steph or maybe these players will come in. You know, it's all about longevity. But I don't know if you're going to find a better shooter. You know, I mean, Bird was great. Mark Price was a great shooter. People forget about him. I mean, there's a lot of great shooters. But, you know, if longevity, you know, you're going to have a tough time not saying Steph Curry is probably the best shooter that's ever been. Let me add, you, you dropped LeBron's name into the clutch conversation, and I agree with you. I, I think that he is. But he does seem to have the yips at the free throw line late in games. Is there anything that you've ever picked We've up? We've seen it, too, and, and, and we don't understand why, because that guy, I remember, I mean, I think we were talking the other night. You asked me about a, about a game. I refereed the game. I'm trying to remember exactly what it was. It was the Boston-Cleveland series the game where LeBron had, was it 45 and Pierce had 44? I mean, do you remember that game? I'm sure you do. I mean, it was absolutely phenomenal. I mean, it, was a, it, was a, it, was a, it wasn't a final. The encyclopedia memory for sports in this room doesn't sit behind this desk. He's, do you remember, do you know the game he's talking about? 2009 or 2010. There you go. And uh, you're absolutely right. And I remember it was in Boston Garden. And I remember Paul was unbelievable, and LeBron was unbelievable. And I believe, I believe I'm not right, Boston won that game. I think they won the series. I think that's the year they won the, I think that's the year they won it, if I remember right. They had Ray Allen, they had uh, um, Kevin, Kevin and they had, um, of course, Paul. 
And, um, and Paul was always one of my favorite players, too. I just thought he made a lot of clutch shots as well. But, I mean, you know, I don't think he'll, he might never be put in that echelon, but he's, he's right there, too. But that watching two players go at it, I'm, that was We're about good. to say, though, did LeBron struggle at the free throw line? Yes, some? he has. He, he struggled. And, and, and I don't know why. Because I remember that one year when he was with Cleveland and he took them all the way to the finals. I don't, I can't remember. I don't think he won the, fi- won the finals. He made more. How about the shot where he was going out of bounds on the sideline and threw? I mean, he made more shots that were absolutely, he just took them on his shoulders and he was unbelievable. And I, that was the time where I'll, you know, you say, I never want to get into the, to the who's the greatest player of all time and all that. I just think, I think it's good for, for fodder and all that, but I just think it's almost disrespectful because, because, you know, Kareem, my gosh, I mean, Jerry, Mr. West, I mean, Elgin Baylor, all the, and then you, and then you come into now and you, and you look at Michael, I mean, my gosh, it, I, there can't be a better player than Michael Jordan. And now, of course, you're looking at, you know, you look at Kobe and LeBron, different eras, different styles, different this and that. Um, I just, I, I just, I don't know. I just like to, I'm not trying to avoid the question. I just think that they're all such great, <laughs> great, great athletes. Does it really, does it really matter? I mean, maybe Eagles get involved there, you know, but I just think they're all great players. But uh, yeah, that game when those two, but why, why we could never figure that out either. Why he would, he's such a great player and he's, be, and at the beginning of his career, he wasn't the great shooter that he is now. He's a great. He's a very good shooter now, and he's worked so he worked so hard at it, and he's you know. Let me let you off the hook here. Sure. Do you ever you just talked about LeBron and some shot he hit? How often during a game, that as a referee, do you have to catch yourself from going, "Wow, that was amazing," and stay focused just on refing the game? Anytime. I mean, I mean, especially early on in my career. I mean, you know, I can't remember the veteran referee. It was a good shoot. Somebody told me one time, you know, all right, listen, uh, you know what, you, 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 you missed that play, but you know what, maybe if you quit watching and start refereeing, maybe you'll get a few more plays right. I mean, it was almost funny. He meant it funny. He was, he was, he was a great teacher, too. But um, no, I mean, you, you can't get caught up in that because you're, we're constantly you not. You, 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 These are the most, unbel- they're ballet dancers. That are six foot six. That in fact, that's what that's what um, um, Woody Allen's wife at the time sat behind the bench at Madison Square Garden. She came to every Knicks game, and that's what she said. These are like ballet dancers that are six foot ten that are so beautiful. What they do is amazing. That's why she enjoyed watching the game. It's funny you say that. I just just remember that. But uh, but no, I mean it's 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 amazing what they do. And yes, do I do I I, I appreciate it so much. But I, I got to get right back to what I'm what I'm supposed to be focusing on here, so I don't <laughs> I don't miss the next play, you know. The uh, and I, obviously we talked about Shaq and some of the great players hard to officiate, but what about players that you respected, but you knew like I'm in for a hard night. He's gonna complain or question calls. Who who was difficult to officiate from a you know, there's just going to be tension between. I was them. never, you know, I never would would talk about that. But later on in my career, because I've gotten to know them now a little bit off the floor, and I'm I'm not talking out of school because we've had conversations about just this, and we've laughed, and now we joked about it. But some of these players were extremely difficult, and extremely difficult. And I I at at the time when I was refereeing, I I, I took offense at it because I didn't think they respected my profession. That was the greatest. That was the thing that would bother the referee the most. I'm suppo- I, I respect every player and every coach without question. There's not 
I, I mean that. Um, I don't have to like them. They don't have to like me. I don't care, but I respect them for what they do. When we didn't feel like a, a player respected us, that was, that was something. It says, who doesn't respect you for, for your craft? And, and when people don't respect each other, that's where we have problems. But now I can look back like, I mean, Reggie Miller. You don't think Reggie Miller was difficult to referee? Oh, boy. Oh, my gosh. Absolutely. I mean, unbelievable. And, and to the, if he walked in the door right now, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't wait to hug him. Because we would talk about things like that, and he knows it, and he, we, we would admit it, and we'd, he was so intense. I don't think a lot of times he even knew how he was coming up. Allen Iverson. You don't think Allen Iverson was difficult to referee? You talk about a competitor. I mean, extreme. I've hit him and thrown him I don't know how many times, and we were at a Hall of Fame. No, I, was in a, I worked my first, second All-Star game in 2005 in Denver, and Allen had, um, had gone a year or two, and he, he was just coming back. He was just, you know, and he was... Back, in the, back to the All-Star game. He came up to me in an All-Star game and said, Kenny, I'm so glad to see you here. It's great to see you. How you doing? And he was sincere. Alan's not phony. There's nothing yeah. about Alan that's phony. And so I go, I go hey, Alan, it's great to see you here. I'm so glad to see you. And so I'm at a Hall of Fame dinner. I've got a picture of him. It's up on my wall. And that's what I, I thought. So we saw each other at Hall of Fame dinner. He reached across the table. He couldn't wait to say hello to me. And and so there's some, you know, there's, you know, and I'm just a referee. But I mean, there's something there. So when somebody respects our profession, but he was difficult. Reggie was difficult. Tom Chambers was difficult. Of course, Rasheed was difficult. I mean, Rasheed I mean, Wallace you know, would be very difficult. It's difficult. It's probably high most games. And I've and I've and, and, and Arnie Kantner, who is a dear friend of mine, who was the trainer with the Detroit Pistons all those years said, Kenny, off the floor, he's a hell of a guy. He's a great guy. Family man, all this and that. I'd love to meet the guy. I don't know if he'd want to meet me, but I mean, there's, there's no you know, remorse. There's no Ill, Ill, Ill feeling. But yeah, but these guys were difficult to referee. And yet, and yet I, 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 I've come to believe, I've seen them all. I've seen Tom, I've seen them all. I come to Van Exel, Gary Payton. I threw Gary Payton out of a game in the first 10 seconds, I think. I mean, it just, I, he just, it couldn't have been something I did. It had to have been something that maybe he had an argument. I mean, they're people. People don't realize these guys are, they could have an argument with his wife. He could have had a, a bad day. He could, have, he could have been hurt and he could have been, he had pain. He, who knows? But I mean, you know, but now if I saw him, I'd give him a, I'd, I'd say, I'd give him a hug. And I, I mean that. I mean that sincerely. It's, uh, I just had to realize that it was all part of the game. One guy uh, that you and I have talked about, I think even on your last trip, is that uh, I think you have, in a respectful, professional way, uh, just a lot of respect for Steph Curry. I do. And uh, the way he conducts himself on and off the court and the energy and spirit he brings uh, to the game. What? Clarify or explain. Well, I mean, on I know a lot of people do this. I could tell you stories about Charles Barkley, what he does off the floor, what Shaq does off the floor, what Carl Malone has done off the floor. I'm not going to because it's not my place. These guys probably want want to keep you know anonymity anonymity about that. But I mean, they're they they, they do some wonderful things. But I just had a, a situation where, and I and I've talked about it because not not just because of, of Steph, but because of. This is a lot of what a lot of these players do that people, you know, we criticize them, people criticize them, you know, they make all this money, all this stuff. But the things that they do, I think people, I think they should, they should, it should be told. And um, one time I was refereeing a game in Golden State and I, and I, I always, I always exercise at the table. 
And again, Dr- Draymond Green's another one who's extremely difficult to referee. But you know what? Off the floor and even on the floor. I mean, the guy can be a heck of a guy. And yet he's, he's, he can be difficult. And, he, and he, I think he knows it. So I, don't, you know, I, I, I respect that too. But, so I'm saying to Steph, how's, how's it going? And I always like Steph's father. His father was in the league when I started. Played for most of his career with Charlotte. And what a great shooter he was. And always a class act. And always, you know, we'd walk out of the arena together. I remember he was just a good, ma- good man. And so now he's got his, these two sons. And both sons are, are good people. Both of them are. You know, and, they, and that other one can shoot too. Seth can shoot too. Yeah. And um, so I'm at the table. I said, yeah. He said, how's it going? I said, yeah. This young kid, boy, we've got a kid back home that thinks the world of you, Steph. He just thinks you hung the moon. And he's got a form of um, cancer, you know. And I don't know if he's going to make it. And uh, he, says, he said, what's his name? I said, Danny. He said, well, what do you need? I said, no. Nah, you know, we, back then, we used to be able to get autographs, you know, from players to use as for, for um, charities and stuff like that. Now the NBA, they want us to go through them, and sometimes that's hard to do, so you just, you just don't do it. But, so I said, well, Steph, I, I, I'm not supposed to do this. He said, Ken, what's his name? I said, Danny. I said, okay. So we go and referee the game, and I'll never forget the game because I, I called two plays that were horrible against him. They, they, were, they were horrible. Uh, they were... <laughs> I remember to this day. I'm not laughing about it. But I go. I'm looking at the kid, going, "I don't like that play at all, Steph." That was, and so I'm showering after the game, and um, and all of a sudden I get the, the security guard calls me, says, "Kenny, this is for you," and I come out to the, Ron, I got a towel. I come out and I get the, he signed two shoes, to Danny, from Steph. All good things happen to whatever his quote is. He remembered his name. That was three hours ago. He remembered his name. I mean, I like to think I would have remembered his name, but I, I just thought things, the people that are coming after him, I just I sent that, or my, I was going on to another city. My refereeing partner sent it to the young man. I got a call from his mother the next day, and, or, or three, excuse me, three or four days later. She said the little kid cried, and so did the mother. And, um, you know, and so a year later, or six months later, I got a game in Minnesota. And I'm refereeing. I just so happen to have a game in Minnesota. I, I live in Florida during the winter season months, but I was in Minnesota, and I invited that kid's family to the game. They were sitting up there. So I'm out on the floor, and I said to Steph, I said, we just, just go by each other. Hey, how you doing, kid? Good, good, Kenny. How you doing? Good. How's your family? I said, they're, I said to him, he said, they're good. I said, how did your dad form you to? And I said, uh, you remember that kid that you gave those shoes two years ago? Or, or, or about a year ago? He says, yeah. He said, yeah, how's he doing? Is he gonna, did he make it? I said, yeah, he's at the game tonight. He dropped the ball. You know, he's got this routine. Everybody knows his routine. We've seen it on. He's, he, everything is set in for every second of every, you know. He drops the ball. He says, where is he? I said, he's, he's up there. He said, get him. So I, I, said, I said, Danny, come here. So all these, you know, his, his brothers and a couple of young kids came down. And Steph goes over to the corner. And, um, and all the media, you know, just collides on Steph. And all the people, they came out of their seats and it's all in the corner. And we're sitting there. I go, I go Danny, is there something you'd like to say to Mr. Curry? And he said, you know, the kid, I mean, the kid, the kid's shaking like this. And he, I think he peed in his pants. You know, he was, it was exciting as hell. He goes, hello, Mr. Curry. He says, you know, I'm, I wanted to thank you for, for the sh- beautiful shoes you gave me. I, 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 Mr. Maurer helped me get them in a glass box, and I, I'll treasure them. Whatever he said, you know. He said, well, how you doing? He says, I, I, I'm getting a lot better, Mr. Curry. And he took his hat off, and he said, uh, look at Mr. Curry. I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting hair. Oh, man. And uh, so Seth said, well, hey, you keep up. You hang in there. Danny, and I'm so proud of you. He said, let's get a picture. 
So he goes over, gets a picture with these three kids, and he walks on the floor. And I just said, thanks, kid. Appreciate it. And, you know, that was it. I mean, it's just something that um, that family and I still talk about. And the kid made it. He's grown. He's healthy. And, um, you know, it's just things. You know, I'm sure he's done many of those things. I'm sure a lot of the players do those things. And uh, I just think that that's something these players. Uh, one time LeBron, my, my uncle, was at a game. He watches LeBron play every day. And at home, he's got a TV set. He's almost blind. He sits eight inches from the TV screen like this to see LeBron play. He loves the guy. And so I, I bring him to a game in Miami, and uh, I take him down. I said, LeBron, my uncle, they're warming up. I said, LeBron, you know, LeBron doesn't say much to referees. He says, I said, LeBron, my, my uncle thinks the world of you. He thinks you hung the moon. He says, where is he? Is he here? I go, yeah. So he dropped the ball. He goes, went over, took a, sh- took a picture with him, shook his hand. He's almost blind. These are things, you know, I mean, hey, there's good and bad said about all these players, about referees, about all of us, about you, Jason. But, you know, people should be given their due when they, I mean, that was just something that I'll, I'll always remember. And I thanked him and went out and called fouls on him after, during the game. <laughs> I, uh, one thing you weren't shy about were calling technical fouls. It was, um, uh, it was something that, uh, yeah. I think they used to call you Kenny T. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't something Kenny I'm real T, proud yeah. of, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think in one game, you called five technicals in a 10-second span during one game. Do you, do you, I think you remember it as six. We did the research, oh. and it was five well, in 10 seconds. Well, you, you remember that? It was six, but I let the other referee take that one to the table because I had had enough. Oh. So it kind of, it kind of was, I'll never forget, the referee is a dear friend of mine. So, um, you know, it was one of those things where um, I, was, I was in Minnesota again, and I was refereeing, and... and uh, we were taught that back then it was any kind of taunt, any kind of this, any kind of whatever, we were to immediately give a technical foul to. And so one technical foul led to another, and then another player walked by, says, ah, you're, but you're full of me, whatever, you swore. I go get a technical foul on you. And then Kevin Love took the ball and threw it, whatever, and Kevin's, they don't come any better than Kevin Love. I mean, yeah, they don't. And so I said, that's on you too, Kevin. And I, you know, then, then, you know, basically you're sitting there going, okay, you know, you don't, anybody else, you know? And, and then Kurt said something and Kurt wasn't, didn't like what I had called and said a few choice words and, and Kurt Rambus. Rambus. And so I gave him he a was technical. He Timberwolves coach at that yes. time. Yes. And then I te- gave him a technical foul. And then, and then he said something that it's, he yelled it out. So it's, it's probably on the, he yelled it. Everybody heard it. So, I mean, you know what he said. And so. I said, get out. So I threw him. And then I remember there was one other one, too. And then <laughs> Bill Lambie says, Ken. I said, Bill, please don't, you know. He said, you're going to hit me next? I said, I, I, I hope not. I said, you're not going to. I don't say anything. I said, we're, we're, let's leave her. It was just something that it went viral, went YouTube. And it was something that, um, uh, you know, I... I don't know that I, I was wrong. I, I, there are many technical fouls that I could have walked away on, and I and I didn't it didn't handle right, and it was probably after a play I missed. But these I, I don't know. Probably I just, when you tossed Doc Rivers from a game, you probably oh that was a remember? classic. You remember that one? Do you have that one? That was yeah. A, I think we I think we have some footage of oh Doc Rivers lost his mind for a second. Yeah, he did. And um, first of all, again I. I think the world of Doc, I, I, res, I have a lot of respect for Doc Rivers. I refereed him as a player. So many of the guys I refereed as players and now coaches. But I, I, I would love, Doc Rivers is a, is a good man. We, have, we laugh, we joke, he's a, he's a good man. But he, there's a rule that we, they had put in the NBA that, that so, so many coaches were coming out on the floor and going over half court. 
either to call a timeout or something, running into players. I mean, they, so the NBA put in a rule. If, if a coach goes across midcourt during a live or dead ball, I mean, we want him during a live, live or dead ball, we want you to give him a technical ball, period. No excuses. So early in the season, during a preseason game, a young referee, and I was in the game too. I didn't either. You know, the referee stepped over the line to get the attention of, of my referee, and we were all given emails about, we want you to give that guy, why didn't you give him a technical foul? I said, he stepped over to get the referee's attention, and, and you want, okay, fine. No problem. Well, I guarantee it won't happen again. So we're, I'm with Doc, and I'm, I can't remember where we were. I mean, it was, uh, I can't remember what arena we were in. But anyway, I was in Jersey, I think. And um, he didn't like a play. Fellow referee Lauren, Horn, Lauren Holkamp, very, one of our, our women referees, very good referee. I mean, she has, I mean, I'm serious. You know, a lot of people don't give these women their due, but she has worked at her craft to the point where she has become a, a very good referee. And so uh, anyway, for whatever reason, Doc went across the line, was complaining, was saying about a car, and Lauren just, she's learned a lot. It would never happen to her again. She's, she's a sponge. She picked it up. It never happened to her again. But then Doc came back, went to sit in his seat, and Lauren, so I, so I, I said, Doc, that's a techno fall on you. Well, he went ballistic. He went crazy. He went, what is, hey. It was her call. She didn't make it. He returns to his bench, and then you make the call for him cross. That's correct. So That's he correct. thinks you've done it for no reason. That's correct. And you know what? I can understand probably why he thought that. And I, and, I, and, I, and I understand that. And there are times when, you know, you have to do something for a, a fellow referee or a partner referee. Sometimes a referee's walking away and a, and, a, and, a, and a player goes, that's a bunch of, you know what? Well, if I'm there, I'm going to give that player a technical foul. My, my partner didn't, didn't see that action. And I would expect my partner to do that for me. Well, Lauren, for whatever reason, maybe didn't think it was egregious. Maybe she had never had the situation I had before. So then he went crazy, so I ended up throwing him. He's got his coat off, and there's a press conference after. Well, one of my bosses was actually at the game, and he came in the game, and I, I looked up at him, uh, Kiki Vanaway. I said, Kiki? He goes, you had to. What, what, he, there was no choice. I said, yeah, well, he, you know. And he, so the, ne- the, the thing that people don't, what I want people to understand is, is that, those things are not carried. People want to make a big deal about him. I respected Doc Rivers before that game, after that game, and moving forward. And I had him many, many times, and I've probably given him technical fouls after that. He knows when he deserves them, he gets them. But the next time I had him, which was like a week or two later, we were at the table where I'm, where I'm tying my shoes and getting ready. He goes, you gonna say hello to me or not? And I walked over to him and I said, of course I'm gonna say hello to you, but I gotta tie my, I gotta you know, zip up my pants or whatever I said, you know. And he said, hey, listen, I wanna apologize. I said, what for? I know what he meant. He goes, listen, I was, I was a little out of character there, a little out of line. He says, you know, I said, Doc, you don't have to apologize to me. I said, you know that. I appreciate you. I, re- I respect, I appreciate what you're doing. I said, thank you. I said, I said, I don't want to do that. I want to give that. That's the rule. I said, Doc, you're on the committee. You're the one who, you're the one who, you're the one who put in the rule. Yeah, but I never liked it, he said. I said, well, maybe you didn't like it, but I said, uh, I had to do that. Or they come, you know, they come down to me. He says, I know that. I know that. I just want you to know. And, you know, and from then on, it's always that those are things people don't hear that happens to players. If you give them a technical foul, you see them the next game. I would go up to them and say, we OK? Anything you want to talk about? Hey, no. Or they come up to me and say, Kenny, I was out of line. Or I'd say, you know, I looked at the play that led to the technical foul. I missed that play. 
you're right, I was wrong, I missed that play, but I can't allow you to be unsportsmanlike. I mean, whatever, whatever it is, and um, these are the things people don't hear about, and I wish they would. This may be testing your memory, but maybe not. The greatest player performance that you feel like you ever refereed or were involved with that game, do you, is there any particular, were you there when you weren't there when Kobe scored 81, were you? No, it wasn't uh. there. No, that was, that was true. But you know what? Yes, I do know that. I, I, I've thought about that. And a lot of people think it's when one player does this. And I had one when two players did it. It was in the, I can't remember, we'll have to ask Corey again, 2008, 2009 uh, NBA. I think it was the semifinals. I think it could have been quarters or semis. I think the, it's the year Boston ended up winning it. I think they had Kevin and Ray and Paul. And Paul was just playing so well, Paul Pierce. Unbelievable. And, you know, LeBron was on a tear. He was just, I can't remember what he had averaged that playoff series. But, and the one before that, he was playing. So, but I think LeBron got 46, and Paul got 45 or 40, and he won. They won. I just, that was one of the, that was a game I'll always remember. It was a great game. Both teams played hard, and um, Boston went out. Doc was coaching uh, the Celtics at that time. I think Ty Lue was the assistant coach. And it was just, both players were just, just Paul Pierce was always one of my favorites. He competed every night. A lot of clutch shots, you were asking again. He's in that group. But um, that was the greatest performance by two athletes in the same game on both ends of the floor that I, that I was a part of. Years ago, in an intramural game in, in high school, yeah. I put up 12 points, and one of my best friends put up 40 uh, in the same game, and we won. I wish you You won that it. game? Yeah, we won. Uh, one of my best friends put up 40. I scored 12. And it led us, I think it was the second game of the season. And so we won that intramural game. I wish I'd have been a part of that. Yeah. I wish I'd have been a part of that. Probably. I may have scored 13 had you 13. been there. Yeah. Well, let's get it straight. Good, get it. I would have been, I'd love to have seen that guy, that team in the years, get 40. And you're 13. <laughs> Kenny, uh, thank you so much for coming back. I enjoy it. I enjoy uh, being with you. I, I enjoyed this conversation, a walk through the NBA from a guy that, uh, has been on the front row for a lot of amazing moments and interesting moments. Uh, uh, there's more to come. We still got Tennessee Harmony. Get your Fearless Army swag at shopblazemedia.com slash fearless. Uh, Pastor Anthony Walker and Tennessee Harmony. Welcome back. Uh, it's Wednesday. And even though we just had a very long, long conversation uh, with Ken Maurer about the NBA and his memories, we got to get some Tennessee harmony. And you know what we do on Wednesdays. Uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington is not w here with us, but uh, Pastor Anthony Walker is uh, much more reliable than uh, Pastor Bobby. He, he's here, and we've got a couple of topics we want to talk about from a discussion I had with T.J. Moe on Monday 
uh, that I thought applied. And then Anthony pointed out something that he, he wanted to talk about off our conversation with TJ Moe about Lamar Jackson. And so uh, before we uh, dive into that conversation, I want uh, Pastor Anthony to bless our conversation. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for another day. We're thankful for all the opportunities you've given us. Uh, bless us in our discussion on today. We pray uh, that what you would have to be known and expressed, Father, is what is expressed in everything that we say. Be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, Anthony, you were most not most, but you were interested in our conversation. TJ, I think, said something about Lamar wanting to be a billionaire, and we had a little conversation about that. Let's play the clip, and then I want to hear what you reacted to. I do think that as a kid, he thought about, oh, how can I be a billionaire? I want to win games, and I want to be a billionaire, because we've had a culture that has preached to him that making as much money as possible is the most important thing in the world, and you're really not somebody until you got enough money to throw away $100,000 in a strip club one night and turn around and burn 50000 just to impress your friends. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know, what, what caught your attention about that conversation? Uh, it resonated with me because I'm a generation or half a generation before Lamar. Uh, but you are absolutely right that uh, we have been preached to about what success looks like. And success is in our culture tied to money and success is tied to power. So if you make a lot of money, you become, quote unquote, successful. You have the power. Uh, we were preached that. And so growing up and I'm kind of like Lamar, you know, growing up, you don't have much you're thinking, how can I make enough money to pull us out? Uh, but I even, you know, zoom out even further. Even our concept of the American dream is somewhat tied to success. You know, being self-sustaining, which has a lot to do with money, uh, being able to provide for yourself. But what we really need to do is redefine what success looks like from a godly perspective. And success is not amassing a lot of money. A lot of times money will take you away from what God wants you to do. Uh, but success is really the saving of the soul. If we save the soul, we can save the family. If we save the soul, we can save the nation. Uh, and that's money aside. You know, that doesn't have anything to do with money and fame and power. That's really from a godly perspective. But it, it resonated with me because I know there is a generation that that's what we've told them to do. Get you a good job so you can make some good money so you can get out of this mess. And I'm not opposed to having good jobs and I'm not opposed to money. But what we really need to say is, wait, we really need to be about what God wants, because if we're on a godly path, he will make us successful. He will take care of our families. Uh, it reminds me of what. Uh, Coach Tom Landry said one time he was asked, you know, why are you so successful? He said, I do what most successful people have done. I determined my priorities in life and that's God, family, then football. And so he actually credited his 
success in football and success in life as his aligning his priorities with God being first. So, again, I I understand why Lamar and many other athletes, uh, especially black athletes that come from, you know, poor, desperate situations, look at money. I get why they see that, but we still need to go back to God. You know, a lot of football people talk about maybe they don't even attach it to Tom Landry, but they talk about faith, family, and football. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the show I had at Fox Sports, we had T-shirts because it was a, it was a show founded in football, and we had T-shirts that said faith, family, and football. And, and you know, Tom Landry, mm-hmm. a religious person, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, a lot of football coaches, particularly in that era, were religious people and kind of believed in that in that mantra. The, the only thing where I used to, I, I grew up poor, and I can remember me, my mother, and my brother laying in the living room floor, and we could pass an hour or two of time just having a conversation. Man, what, what would you do if you won the lottery? Mm-hmm. What would we do? And I, I'm, I'm sure maybe there's a lot of poor yes. kids that can relate to that. I can and, relate. You know, because this was back in the day before, you know, everybody was obsessed with video games and had cell phones or whatever. So you'd pass the time with conversations, a lot of fantasy conversations. But but I I never, even though we'd have those conversations, we would think about, oh man, if we, you know, had all the money we could ever spend, what would we do? That was kind of fun. I never equated the American dream, as I'm talking about as a young person, Mm -hmm. as having as much money as I possibly could or, or being super rich. I thought of the American dream as, and even though I, I don't know, I didn't apply enough of this to my life in my 20s and 30s, but I really did think of the American dream as having a family, having a house in a nice neighborhood, having some kids, uh, and being able to provide for them and your family. That's what the American dream uh, amounted to me. I think we've become so materialistic uh, in the American culture that now the American dream means having a mansion, mm-hmm. having a private plane, mm-hmm. uh, and having power to mm-hmm. control your death, not just your destiny, but other people's destiny. And, and so when, and then again, who the kids see as idols, uh, you know, Lamar mentions LeBron or whatever, but, a lot of kids, I think, in the inner city, think of the rappers, Jay-Z, whomever. And, and again, we have created a culture. It doesn't matter how you acquire the money. Mm-hmm. If you have it, you're successful. Mm-hmm. And you're someone to be respected and listened to. And, um, you know, I, I, don't, I think Lamar Jackson is a great young man. Uh, I'm not sure if at age 25, I would sound much different than him in terms of my worldview and perspective, and hopefully he'll mature. And because I do think he has a religious foundation, a faith-based, a Christian foundation, you know, hopefully he will mature out of that. The uh, the other thing that uh, TJ and I made a note uh, that like TJ, you're taking us off in a different path, and I wish you know TJ were available today because I'd have him asked directly, but he, he started talking about revelations, and this was in a different part of the conversation. It didn't have anything to do with Lamar, really. It, it was just about what time we're living in right now 
and he, you know, his view is based on the book of Revelations, uh, we're in that time. Uh, and he was mostly talking about globalism, a one world government, and, and so let's play the clip and then I want your uh, take. We will have a long conversation at some point about what globalism actually leads to, the product of globalism. Because again, it's, you know, we act like these guys who are benefiting the most, LeBron and Bernie Griner, most of the NBA specifically, they say, well, it's, it's, the, it's the greatest good for the most amount of people. And that's how they preach it and, and hide behind it, even though they're really the only ones who are benefiting it. The, the logical product of globalism is a one world government because the only way to keep everybody in agreement is to have one person in power. Otherwise, there's no way you can have a million different people in power. And so a one world economy, a one world government is all biblical. If you've read Revelations chapter 13, John describes a, a vast empire of someone with power, great authority, that's gonna be worshiped by all people having the authority over every tribe, people, language, nation. This is all coming someday. And so to get in a much deeper version of what this is, guys like you and I need to be fighting against this and delaying it as long as humanly possible because when globalization actually does become a reality, the end is near. Mm. Uh, <laughs> is he on firm footing? It depends on how you interpret the book. Um, the book of Revelations, the, the, the name Revelations, is actually the word apocalypse, okay? Apocalypse means revealed. So when John writes this book, John uses what we in you know, religious circles call apocalyptic literature. And that kind of language uses highly figurative language. Uh, it's, it's very coded. And so you would have to have a deep understanding of what the language means, the figurative language means, to be able to apply it to your interpretation of the text. So when we look at Revelations, I often tell people you first need to study the book of Daniel, because that's the first time biblically that we are introduced to that kind of language, those figurative uh, you know, language. And then we can look into the book of Revelations. The book is one of the most difficult and most, you know, kind of misinterpreted books because it's written on different layers. Uh, for example, uh, John enters into a trance like state as he's writing the book. So imagine if you are having a dream and you're describing a dream and also using figurative language. So it's written on all those layers. So in order to interpret it, you have to kind of decode all of that to then see, OK, now how do we actually apply the message? There are three ways. Really, there's more than three ways, but three primary ways that people deal with the book of Revelations. I've got a slide that will kind of explain this. There is the preterist uh, perspective. They look at the book as being written about things that happened in the past. So after decoding the language, going through all the figurative language, they believe that this is talking about or John is talking about things that happened in the past, uh, about A.D. 70, when the book uh, is written. And it's between uh, or about Rome and the church 
and the issues that are had there. So that's one perspective. Another way of interpreting it are the idealist. And idealists believe that there are principles given in the book about an ever continuing cycle between God's people and the enemy. So when you decode the language, they believe that, you know, you'll see a rise in apostasy, people turning away. You'll see a rise of an antichrist. And then you will see a remnant of God's people led by God that will overtake that. And, and we'll kind of go through this cycle. So that's one another way of interpreting the text. And then you have the futurist that believe that the book is written about the end times or the last days. So when they decode the language, they're using it to say, OK, wow, at some point in the future, these kind of things are going to happen. And we need to look for those and respond in that way. So depending on how you interpret it, and that's why I say it depends on how um, Revelations 13, I'll just go through a couple of lines of it for brevity. He says, now, this is what the text says. Then I stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns and on the horns, ten crowns and on the heads of a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth was like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded and a deadly wound was healed. All of the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now, depending on your interpretation, uh, that beast could be Nero. The beast could be Domitian. The beast could be another antichrist figure led by Satan. Uh, some people have looked at the beast and, that, you know, this is the same beast that we say is marked with 666. Some people have looked at that and they said, wow, you know, it, it could have been uh, Hitler because Hitler's names all had six letters and he was a satanic figure and he tried to have this united one world says maybe it's Hitler. And then other people looked at it. Well, maybe it's Ronald Reagan. His names had, you know, six letters, Ronald Wilson Reagan. Maybe he's the beast. So depending on how you interpret it, this uh, apostasy, this falling away, this antichrist that's coming, Jesus spoke of an antichrist that would come. Uh, I tend to not run to revelation because of all the complexity in the language and I look at other texts, uh, Matthew, Jesus refers to a passage in Matthew where they were asking him, what signs should we look for at the end of the time? When is this stuff going to happen? And Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour that I'm going to come. You know, it's going to be like in the days of Noah, uh, where, you know, people are going to be doing what they want to do. And then all of a sudden I come. Uh, Paul talks about an apostasy uh, coming. He, he, mef he references the last days. Now, now where I stand on the last days, when we look at last days, we think of, OK, five, four, three, two, one. This is it. Biblically, the last days describe a period of time. So after Christ has ascended to go back to heaven, he's going to come back again. 
And until he comes back again, that period of time is called last days. So it, it dates all the way back to the cross up until now. So all of that period of time, we've had kind of like the idealist look at it. We've had uprising of antichrist figures who have been overtaken by Christ uh, followers. And so we've had that kind of cycle to go on. I, I look at, you know, what TJ said, and I understand how he gets there. And there are a lot of people that look at even these times with coronavirus and, oh, the vaccine and this globalist kind of political perspective. Maybe this is that time. Those have been cycles, you know, civil war. Uh, those have been cycles. World War One, World War Two, you know, all of these things. What we need to focus on, as the Hebrew writer would say, is to give more earnest heed to what Christ said and really follow in his path, really do what he says to do, uh, converting the soul, becoming disciples ourselves and discipling others. And we, we don't have to necessarily look at signs because even Jesus says he doesn't know when the end is going to be, but just be ready when he comes. Fascinating explanation. And, and so I, I just want to tell you a couple things that ran through my mind as you were giving that explanation is that uh, if what concerns me about, because, and this isn't me disagreeing with your explanation, it's just like, wow, the, my takeaways brought a concern of like, uh, the powerful countries, America being the most powerful, mm -hmm. and, and, and in my view, much of Europe, the people with the most weapons, the ability, seem to be moving away from uh, religion and, and, and Christianity. And, and, and so we've become very secular. And so I think in, based on some previous eras where maybe an antichrist, a one world government type person rose up, the people with the most power were uh, were more Christian countries or more faith-based countries. And it, so it was easier to slay them. Mm -hmm. But as America becomes more secular and our leadership uh, seems to be more globalist and all of our corporations are, are, are with power seem to be globalist, it just seems like we're more vulnerable. And so I, I could see where uh, the futurist, because I think mm -hmm. TJ is expressing a mm -hmm. futurist perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I listened to your idealist perspective mm -hmm. and it made me more hopeful. It made me like, yeah, we, yeah. we can rally and, and, you know, this fight's not over. And then that's what made me go to the conclusion of like, but do we have the most power? Do we have uh, the biggest weapons? Do we, can we really slay the dragon this time? when I think our country's become more secular, but. Uh, let, me, let me say real, real quickly to that. One thing that encourages me from the book of Daniel and that period of time, there were like world powers that if this power was in place, this government was in place, it literally controlled the whole world. And Daniel describes there will be a kingdom that will arise that will be more powerful than all of those. And what he's meaning is 
you think about like you talked about this country, this country, this country. If we want a territory, we're, we're fighting over land rights and, and things of that nature. But God's kingdom is not based on territory. It's not based on land boundaries or based on weapons. It's based on minds and hearts and souls. And his kingdom can pass through any kind of, you know, land mass or any kind of weapon. You can kill me, but you can't kill the power that God has given me. You can't kill the word. You can't kill the power of Christ. So his kingdom is one that's going to take over the world. Those things. And and I'm not saying I'm not concerned about those issues that you bring up. Those are there. But the kingdom that God is saying that will ultimately win. And that's the conclusion of the book of Revelations too. that kingdom will defeat the enemy so quickly. Uh, Revelations chapter 19 happens like this. John spends half the chapter describing both sides. He talks about the, the beast coming and he talks about Jesus coming in on a white horse. It's almost like fight night. You know, you look in this corner, you see all of these lining up and you see all of this. So you've got half the chapter building up. And then in one verse, he says, but the enemy was defeated. Like, wait, what? We didn't get to see blow for blow. We didn't get to see. You took all the time. And what John is saying is that he's that much more powerful than anything that we can imagine. And that's who is our king. So however you interpret the text, we should leave with this hopefulness that King Jesus is who's leading the charge. And that's who is my king and your king. Mm. That was good stuff. And it was a reminder to me just as and again, every Wednesday this happens uh, and then off camera, just in conversations with friends or whatever. One of the things I hope where I'm trying to convey with this show is that having a discussion about what's going on in the world through a biblical perspective is just as interesting, fast, it's actually more interesting, more fascinating, more edifying Mm -hmm. than discussing it without just being part of your perspective or having a biblical point of view. And that's why I I get so critical of, uh, you know, all these conversations we have about the world and and Jesus and the Bible never come up. Mm. I don't know how you can interpret the world without the Bible and without referencing, you know, uh, Jesus's thoughts. But thank you so much, Anthony. Uh, That's a great punctuation on an awesome Wednesday afternoon. Uh, Let's play some tomorrow and uh, we will see you tomorrow. Freedom, looking for a breakout, feeling like a stand off, nothing in life like freedom. Came like a fighter, striking like a ladder, making all this moves for freedom. I want freedom. No negotiation, my system, no relation, we all just wanna have freedom. Sitting on the corner, never been alone, I'm breaking my back for freedom. Bless, we are living, get back, we are receiving all the seed when we all wanna be free. We want freedom. I just want, I wanna be, I just want, I wanna be.